Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to your Rattlecast number 166. So glad you could join me. It's a special uh, episode on a special night. It's the night before Halloween. We have some spooky poems coming up for you and a guest that likes to write spooky poems. Janine Hall Gailey is here. Uh, she'll be joining us in just a little bit. Before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed, ring the bell for notifications, leave reviews on iTunes, whatever you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be much appreciated. There is no admission price, even though there's a great value to this show. All we ask is you like click stuff so that the algorithms know that you like it, and then they spread it to other people, which is what we want to do because we love poetry and we want to spread it around, so click something. Um... Now, as always, even though it's a special Halloween show, we don't want to disregard everything that's going on in the world. And we have a wonderful poem today. The guest, uh, Joan Kwong Glass, couldn't be here. She had um, prior engagement at this time. But she had a really wonderful poem, Armistice. Um, And here's what she wrote about uh, what's going on in Korea right now. So let me read this, and then we'll play um, Joan Kwong Glass's poem that was Sunday's poem on Poets Respond. So here is is her poem. And... um, Here we go. She says, Joan Kwan Glass, and she says this, My mother was born in Korea and grew up there during the Korean War and in its aftermath. I lived in South Korea there in the 1990s, 1980s, and remember hiding under my bed with my sister during an AFKN broadcast the tunnels from North Korea had been discovered. News like this always brings me back to those days and the longing for peace beyond armistice. And if we click on the link... This is the news story she's talking about. North and South Korea trade warning shots on maritime border. So that was an article that's from The Guardian um, on um, October 23rd. So an article that happened, an event that happened this week. And um, that is what she was writing about. And here is uh, Joan Kwan Glass's poem. Oh, yeah. Got to go back. So here is the poem. Um, and we'll let Joan read it herself. This is Armistice by Joan Kwan Glass. Here we go. Armistice. As children, we sang a Korean nursery rhyme about a lone rabbit who ascends a mountain. None of us can remember learning this song, but all of us know it by heart. We root for the rabbit, bouncing her way toward the clouds, determined, stopping to sniff the not yet frozen ground for fallen chestnuts. On my pre-war map of Korea, the peninsula resembles a hare steadying herself on hind legs, daughter of three gone kingdoms. She gazes warily to the west, front paws vigilant in front of her. I point this out to my students, American 12-year-olds who are already learning to armistice themselves determining which wars to surrender, which mountains to conquer. If given the choice between going back in time or into the future, I choose to levitate. From here, islands pepper the East Sea, specks unknowable. From here, the DMZ is just the trail of a ghost cloud grazing earth with her ghost feet in search of something she can almost remember, might still imagine. 
pulling down a modern world map over Korea, I ask my students, if you could choose to live anywhere in the world, where would you go? One girl, a recent immigrant from Turkey, chooses an island barely visible. When I ask why, she says, I think there would be less war on an island. I would be safer there. As children, we dreamed the rabbit fat with survival. Now we teach our own children that home will appear if they just believe. In the song, we never find out if the hare makes it to the summit. Even so, we sing it, raise our hands, fingers hooked in the shape of ears. We hop, smile, tell our children to climb, show them how to lift chestnuts from the ravaged ground. None of us can remember learning this song, but all of us know it by heart. Yeah, what a great ending. That's uh, Joan Kwan Glass once again. Uh, none of us can remember learning this song, but all of us know it by heart. Um, Joan is actually going to be the guest on Rattlecast. Um, I'm not sure what number it is, but up in December. She has a new book out, um, and we'll be going over that. So she'll be joining us then. Um, but thanks to Joan for sharing this this poem, too, this week, Armistice. Um, now we're going to do, let's set the mood a little bit and read one of the, um, see, I was trying to think of what the creepiest poem that we publish is. And the one that always sends out is this, is this one right here. Uh, this is Natalie Young's poem from Rattle Number 38. And uh, it's called Discussing Earth's Insects. And it's from our speculative poetry issue. Um, but speculative poetry has a lot to do with, with horror and science fiction and Halloween-type stuff. This is an alien-type poem. But you'll see why uh, I think this is pretty creepy. Here it is. This is uh, Discuss, Discussing Earth's Insects by Natalie Young. And uh, here we go. Natalie Young Discussing Earth's Insects. A praying mantis perches on the coffee shop doorframe. The alien is intrigued. He takes out the human's camera. Look at how sturdy its skin is, how mean, like it will reach out and slice anything that gets too close. He wants to know where insects come from. Where the aliens come from, insects don't really exist. He wants to know what's the difference between a moth and a butterfly. She doesn't know the science behind classification, the pieces and parts, something about antenna, smooth club versus pipe cleaner, fuzzy versus shaved. They are not small birds? No, no bones. She explains how she sees. A moth is furry. A butterfly's not. A moth can't resist light. The alien considers the distinction. So, am I the, I am the butterfly and you are the moth? And that is uh, from our speculative poetry issue, rattle number 38, that was on Natalie Young with Discussing Earth's Insects. Um, And here, let's do another creepy poem while we're at it. This is a poem from rattle number 22, which was Poets Writing Abroad. And this is Melanie Wright. She's writing about uh, Jack the Ripper here. It's a sonnet called Riptide. Um, uh, Melanie Wright was an American living abroad in uh, the UK at the time she wrote this, which is why she's in that tribute. Here's Melanie Wright with Riptide. Breath through the windpipe makes a special sound, a kind of gurgling when the throat is cut. As blood seeps into airways that once were round, now flattened by fingers holding her mouth shut. I count the blare of foghorn, one, then two. At three, she stops her writhing, shoulders slump. 
I wait for four, then five. Her lips are blue. At eight, I let her drop. Her body thumps against the warehouse floor. I use some hay to wipe my new boots clean of this wet mess. Ten pints of blood in every body, so they say. It looks like rather more has spilled down her dress. My hands unshaking light a cigarette. I wonder if the fog has lifted yet. There's another creepy poem, Riptide, by Melanie Wright. And uh, that'll set the mood for tonight's show. We're going to be doing some Halloween stuff. Here's some special Halloween bumper music, too, to, cl- to uh, start it out. And we'll talk to Janine Hall Gailey in just a moment. So sit tight, take a quick break, and uh, we'll see Janine Hall Gailey in just a sec. This, this music is um, Luck Witch by Audio Hertz. So enjoy this while we take a quick break, and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest is Janine Hall Gailey. Janine Hall Gailey is a writer with MS who served as the second poet laureate of Redmond, Washington, and is the author of Becoming the Villainess. She returns to the floating world, Unexplained Fevers, The Robot Scientist's Daughter, which is winner of the Moon City Press Book Prize, Field Guide to the End of the World, and the upcoming Flare Corona, which is coming out from Boa Editions, probably my favorite press. They're in the running with Pitt. I'm not sure which is my favorite. They're very close. They're the two best presses, in my opinion. Um, her work has been featured on NPR's The Writer's Almanac, Verse Daily, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror. Her poems have appeared in the American Poetry Review, Poetry, Plowshares, and many issues of Rattle. Um, and uh, she's also uh, author of a book, PR for Poets, A Guide to Publicity and Marketing, which we'll talk about, too, because that's something that everybody's interested in, of course. And here she is, Janine Hall-Gailey. Hey, Janine, how you doing? Hi, Tim. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's just great to have you. It's been a while since I've seen you. Um, you know, we've met a couple times. I think at AWP a couple times and, and uh, at a reading we did together. Um, so it's really cool to have you here. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Um, do you want to start us out with a poem? I will. Uh, this is a poem from Field Guide to the End of the World. It was also chosen for a Best Horror of the Year number six, I think, by Ellen Datlow. Ah, cool. So, it's news to me that I was writing horror poetry, and then I was told I was reading horror poetry. So then I was like, oh, of course, of course. Introduction to the body in fairy tales. The body is a place of violence. Wolf teeth, amputated hands. Cover yourself with a cloak of leaves, a coat of a thousand furs, a paper dress. The dark forest has a code. The witch sometimes dispenses advice, sometimes eats you for dinner sometimes turns your brother to stone. You'll become a canary in a castle, but you'll learn plenty of songs. Little girl, watch out for old women and young men. If you don't stay in your tower, you're bound for trouble. This too is code. Your body is the tower you long to escape, and all the rotted fruit, your babies. The bones in the forest, your memories. The little birds bring you berries. The pebbles on the trail glow ghostly white. And that is uh, from uh, Field Guide to the End of the World, the most recent book um, by Jean Hongaley, Introduction to the Body in Fairy Tales. Um, and so since it's a Halloween episode, we're talking about Halloween-type poems. Um, what is it that you say um, would draw you to, like, what was it that drew you to um, writing this kind of poetry, like this kind of um, you know, speculative-type work that deals in horror and fantasy and, and myth and, and that. Like, all your books seem to relate in some way to things that are touching on the edge of, like, Halloween-type themes, whether it's the end of the world and zombies and things like that, or, like, mythological fairy tales and legends and Grimm's, you know, Grimm's fairy tales and things like that. What is it that draws you to that as a writer? 
I think that um, kind of feeling like an outcast or somebody who was always a little different, you know, besides um, I have a host of weird health problems, but one of them I noticed early on was that I'm allergic to the sun. Huh. Uh, you may notice I am very pale. Uh, that is because I don't go out in the sun. Uh, so that's why I live in Seattle, too. It's a, it's a great place for that. But I was like, even as a kid, you know, I was drawn to myths and the really dark fairy tales. And interestingly enough, I really did not know that what I was writing had a category. You know, when my first book came out, Becoming the Villainess, everybody was like, wow, it has pop culture. It has comic book heroes. You know, it has all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, it does have those things. Is that not normal? You know, I, and then and then people kept including me in like the best years of fantasy and horror and the Speculative Poetry Association and the Horror Writers Association. Those guys reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to join our groups? And I was like, sure. I didn't know there were groups for this. So it was it was sort of like I wrote it first and then found my community uh, afterwards. And it's it's been great. I feel like it's a really close knit community of people, very supportive. It, you know, in some ways, the academic poetry world can be a little cold. But the speculative and horror writing community is super warm, uh, in my experience. You know, that could not be everybody's experience, but just really friendly. So maybe it's because we write about such dark stuff. You know, we already have that out of our systems. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I always find that the subgenres within poetry, which is like a subgenre within literature, which is a subgenre within culture nowadays, um, the subgenres always have great communities. It feels like the haiku community is great. I'm learning the NFT yeah. community is great. Um, and, and, you know, like little Twitter enclaves are great. And I wonder, I always wonder why that is like why the, the mainstream poetry has that feeling of sort of everybody at each other's throats. But then when you get to subgenres, everybody just loves each other and promotes each other. It's a really fascinating. We're, we're just more one You know, it's weird too, because out here in the Pacific Northwest, I, I don't know if you've ever visited the poetry community out here, but it's, it's very friendly, very non-competitive, um, kind of the opposite. And I think I feel like what the New York, I know BOA is in New York State. They are very friendly. But in general, you get that feeling of the New York State poets being so like competitive with each other. We just don't have that going on. Even though there's a lot of people with money, there's probably a lot of grants and, and donations and stuff taking place. But that's all kind of behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. At least I haven't seen it. So I think that the competitiveness is there, but maybe just it's really loose up here, uh -huh. I think. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Maybe I should move up there. That'd be fun. It, it's, very, it's very friendly. We still have fires, though, Tim. Yeah, you can't escape the true. fires by coming up here. No, I guess you can't. Um, so so the thing I wanted, I'm wondering about is why, too, like when I, every time, this is the second time we've tried to do a Halloween show, because the second time the day happened to be on Halloween, where the regular show is going to be. So we've right. done a pre-show, like the night before for Halloween, and then looking for Halloween-type poems, um, like horror-type poems, or, or those kind of like creepy, you know, there's Edgar Allan Poe, and then like, what else is there? It feels like there's very little like horror and like that type genre poetry within poetry, and it feels like such a missed opportunity. Um, I, I think it's there. It's just, you know, um, maybe not as mainstream friendly, but I would say lately there have been a lot of have you noticed like fiction books winning prizes have been more speculative, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's been a tendency. But I was going to say one uh, poet I wanted to mention uh, who's in the Horror Writers Foundation with me is Stephanie M. Whitovich. And she edited this great anthology called Writing Poetry in the Dark. And it's got um, pieces, essays from me and people all over who are talking about speculative poetry, horror poetry, why you even write this kind of thing, how to write this kind of thing. So it's a great book kind of resource for that because... I think you're right. I think some of us are in the dark. Like, who are the poets that write this? I know um, Jason Mott, who is now a fiction writer, but he started out as a speculative poet. We met at a Comic-Con. Oh, yeah. And there's like a mini-con within a Comic-Con where you talk about like 
academic stuff. Mm -hmm. He did a paper and it included me in it. So we like made friends 15 years ago. And now he just won the National Book Award for a hell of a book, which is a ghost story, which I highly recommend. Oh, that's great. Not just because it won the the thing. It's just such a weird book. It's about an author who goes on a book tour, but he's also haunted by ghosts. Plus, Black Lives Matter stuff is going on in the background. Also, he might be crazy. So it's it's just a terrific. It's a terrific read. Yeah, that does sound great. Um, And I've always loved like um, there's a Joyce Carol Oates book. I think it's called like Tales from the Gro- Tales of the Grotesque. Yeah, and I love that's one of my favorite books of short stories, and they're very um, literary and academic type. Like it's not like simple, easy like, yeah. like pulp fiction or something. It's right. really intense stuff, um, really well written, and um, it just doesn't get the kind of I don't know the kind of credit that stuff. It's it's good to hear that other stuff are, are winning book awards for that. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to, the three people who have been my biggest influences as, as a poet have all been kind of poet fiction writers. Mm-hmm. So Margaret Atwood, A.S. Byatt, and Kelly Link, uh, who all three write horror, speculative, you know, kind of short stories. So I, I'm really into that, like that clash between the academic and the, what would you call that? The weird. The yeah. weird. Yeah. But it's, it's out there. The people are out there. It's just, you know, you kind of got to find them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I just always love the weird. So it's cool anytime you encounter it. Um, yeah, let, let's agree. hear another poem. Let's hear a, a zombie poem. I guess this All is right. a, yeah, the one that's yeah. up next. Yeah, and this was inspired. I was on a road trip for something, and there was a movie on Cinemax called Zombie Stripper Clones, I think was the name. <laughs> and I was like, what's the inner life of that character life? Says no one except me. So I wrote this poem. They are not regenerating. This is also from Field Guide. Uh, we are not zombies thrown into a pool of dubious origin and coming back beautiful but decaying, unsure of how to live, pretending to swim, eat yogurt like regular girls. We are not clones, despite being drawn to specifications, 36, 26, 36, and bearing bouffants and bikinis. We might hack each other to pieces, but we are not confused about our identities, living or not living. We continue in this shape we were given. Our cells cannot regenerate, and the scientist names us dead. We are not regenerating. We cannot reproduce ourselves. We cannot be anything but the fulfillment of your fantasy, flesh-eating or not. Yeah, that's another poem from uh, Field Guide to the End of the World. They are not regenerating. Do you want to explain a little bit about what um, Field Guide to the End of the World is about? Is it is it as simple as the title describes is it is it it, instructions for how to survive the apocalypse yeah so it has a it actually has a fictional main character who is this girl who is looking for life who is looking for other humans so she's traveling she goes to california she stays at the viceroy hotel she she looks at the anthropology catalog she thinks about martha stewart surviving the apocalypse ina garten out in the hamptons It's, it's just like a very funny mix of what what would we actually do to survive the apocalypse and it's not a depressing book necessarily because my take on the end of the world is that you know it's about survival and who knows more about survival than we weirdos anyway so, <laughs> yeah. i i read the foxfire books when i was a kid my grandmother sent me foxfire books i don't know if you remember those but they're like how to skin a pig how to grow peas plant peas by the moonlight uh here's how to gather your own wood and start a fire just like a lot of basic survival stuff and i think that really impacted me when i was a kid that we should be prepared for an apocalypse, you know, and when it was the seventies, it was nuclear war and now it's nuclear war again. Ha ha. So that's fun. Uh, 
<laughs> I've been lived long enough for that. Ah, screw this pandemic. We got nuclear war to worry about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's always something. <laughs> it's always something. I mean, really, that's what the book is about, too. There's this idea that my mom worked for a telecom company, and she was the, the disaster preparedness committee leader or something. Oh, really? Hmm. And she's like, there really is no way to prepare. There's no, You know, we were talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Because there's always a new monster that needs a new approach. Hmm. And the, the U.S. government actually used that in a paper to say when you are attacking terrorists, they will always attack in a new way that you will not be prepared for. It It's interesting. That, sorry, that's where my mind goes. But, you know, it's all those things kind of. So all those things wrapped together inspired this book. And this is before the pandemic. Um, hmm. Just uh, my own personal what would you call that? I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I just, I wrote about a lot of stuff that happened, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't do it on purpose. I, I definitely did not write it into being Tim, if that's what you're accusing me of. I'm not a witch. <laughs> I haven't accused you of anything. I mean, I don't know what kind of show you think this is, but it's not that kind of show where I accuse you of <laughs> ending the world witch. with your own creative imagination. Um, but so, <laughs> so, so speaking of your mom, I didn't know your mom um, was in the disaster preparedness and your dad, I think was a scientist, right? If I remember yeah. telling me that, uh, what kind of scientist? And then how did you become a poet? If you have a parents in these kind of very technical sort of yeah. maybe left brain, you might call it or, or um, yeah, yeah. You know, and I was, STEM I was type jobs. Yeah. I, my dad had me programming computer at seven. I learned basic when I was seven years old. I played chess with a robot arm when I was a little kid. I spent time in like giant glass rooms with robots, you know, growing up. So it was kind of odd. And my dad got into robotics because he was tasked with forming robots that would help protect us from nuclear meltdowns, oh, basically, okay. at Oak Ridge, mm-hmm. Tennessee, where he worked. So he was a professor at University of Tennessee, and then he was doing this on the side, Oak Ridge, and that's where we lived. So we lived, like, within five miles of all this radiation and kind of don't don't see, see something, don't say something, don't open your mouth about this. There's like literally signs like that um, around. And a lot of, a lot of kids get cancer up here too. So mm-hmm. it's a weird place. So yeah. So, so yeah. So my, my journey was not straightforward. I had always written poetry. I'd written poetry since I was a little kid. I, uh, I won a couple of poetry recitation contests when I was 10 and 11 at my school and I got big books of Emily Dickinson and uh, I think it was Carl Sadenberg. I read my mom's poetry textbooks by X.J. Kennedy, Introduction to Poetry. X.J. Kennedy, the 1969 edition, has all my mom's notes in it. Oh, wow. I read that as a kid. I, so I was like kind of prepped to become a writer, even though I had all the, I mean, if I wanted to go for the money, I definitely should have majored in computer programming. But I, I majored in biology. That was my first degree. I wanted to be a doctor. And then my health stuff got in the way. The doctor's like, you really shouldn't try to do medical school. And I was like, oh, well, now I have to take a new path. So I went on techno writing. I did that for 12 years. And then I got too sick to work full time. My husband's like, well, why don't you go back and get that MFA you always wanted? Mm-hmm. So that, that's what I did. And that's when I published my first book. Yeah, that was great. And that kind of it makes more sense you know, knowing your dad worked at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, because that's kind of like the the home of the X-Files. You know? it's, it 100% so, were you an X-Files fan? Oh, oh, yeah. I watched yeah. X-Files. From, my big brother was a big X-Files. He, he made me watch Twin Peaks, too. Uh-huh. So oh, yeah. Twin Peaks, X-Files, all that stuff. Uh, MST3K, uh, Mystery Science 3000. He, we were both insomniacs. So he would wake up and he would make me like cheeseburgers. We would watch really bad movies like Killer Shoes. Killer Shoes shows up in one of these poems. So that's where I, yeah, that's where I found a love of this. Stuff. And once again, it's like you, you never really fit in as a child of somebody who does like high-end frightening government work and there's men in black and your phone is tapped your phone is tapped when you were seven you're like the phone is tapped so i can't say anything to you you know like that's a weird it's a weird way to grow up 
Yeah, yeah, that definitely is, and, and leads to really interesting poems. I think. I think so too, and and uh, and you know, it's like my whole family is very full of very interesting people. Not all of us are normal, but maybe that's maybe that's okay. Yeah, maybe maybe the goal isn't normal. You know, I think so. I think I think interesting is better than normal. Yeah, um, but speaking of Buffy, let's do the next poem, which is um, about teenage girl vampires. Vampires. <laughs> I had noticed that a lot. There were a lot of teen girl vampire shows going on for a while. There was. Uh, Vampire Academy and uh, Vampire Diaries. There were just a lot of this teen girl vampire energy going on. So um, this is the poem, uh, Introduction to Teen Girl Vampires. They turn feral while defending their human boyfriends, harmless and blonde in varsity jackets and crew cuts. These girls just want to be loved and fed in that order. And can we blame them? A nurse here or there won't be missed or the guy playing second policeman Bram Stoker equated blood and sex. Mina chased and clever while hunting her Dracula down, his bite awakening impulses that ignited and were ignored. These days, teen vampire girls enjoy sex with abandon, tossing lovers around like tree limbs. These days, the girl doesn't succumb to the monster. She is the monster. Teeth gleaming in the moonlight, coquettish limbs and curls masking superpowers. Oh, she still wants to be the prettiest girl at the prom. And maybe she mourns some future idea of motherhood. But men line up for the promise of her bite, her blood, and she has nothing to fear. She cannot be broken, tarnished by age, her heart impenetrable to anything except for that wooden stake. Yeah, great. That is Introduction to Teen Girl Vampires. Again, from um, from uh, Jean Halgaley's Field Guide to the End of the World. And, and what I love about um, you know horror and fantasy and this kind of genre especially in film too, is the way that it, it sort of is a manifestation of our cultural fears. You know, the zombies being about radiation poisoning. I think I heard that, I read that vampires had to do with like syphilis and the worry, concerns about that. Sense. You know, Frankenstein with the industrial revolution and right. and machines taking over jobs and things like that. And, and yeah. so, so what do you think, um, how, first of all, how do you think that works? And, and, and what do you think is like the next thing? Is there a new sort of genre within within uh, the science fiction, fantasy, horror-type world that just sort of presages what we're actually secretly worried about? You know what I have noticed, and I have commented to, this, to my husband and to friends about this, is that I've noticed movies for young people starting maybe 10 years ago. Um, movies aimed at young people, the big fear is mind control. Hmm. Um, it was in the Hotel Transylvania 3. It was in um, How to Train Your Dragon 2. It was like the fear is mind control. So I think... The kids today are being taught to fear mind control, which is ironic given that they might be the generation that is the most susceptible to mind control because we have so many messages uh, from the media being delivered in so many. I mean, they live their lives online in a way that you and I did not growing up. Um, so I think that's the next, this this idea that somebody can take your mind and change your mind and kind of, um, what was that, Manchurian candidate you, mm-hmm. you know? And But that's in kids' movies. I, yeah. I just noticed that a few, I was like, not really kid appropriate and i don't think they'll understand what they're even talking about but it's kind of a dark uh thing i never really worried about mind control i was like listen i know it's kind of like my people have fears of clone. i sent my jeans into 23 and me and my brother's like aren't you afraid somebody's gonna clone you and i was like no they're gonna take one look at these jeans and no thank no thank you <laughs> that's funny I'm walking away that is great though that's a really fascinating insight because i think you're right you know if, if there's anything that social media um, platforms are. It is mind control. There's those Facebook studies where yeah. they actually manipulated Instagram. people's feeds to change right. their moods throughout the day. 
And, yeah. you know, as the, as the AI gets more and more powerful, the ability to do that is going to be stronger and stronger with actual success and changing the way people think and splitting us into these, you know, far extreme sort of versions of reality that don't yeah. line up anymore. And so I think that's a great, great insight and really interesting to see that come out. And I, and I wonder, that, I mean, that's a strange thing, though. Where does it come from? Like, is it this, like, how, who thinks, like, no one thinks, oh, mind control is the next big thing. I'm going to write stories about it, right? But they're writing about, and it's got to be people our age or younger. So it's got to be either millennials writing that or Xers. And, and we write, you know, my generation, a really small, underrepresented generation. I'm 49, by the way. FYI. In case I was wondering, yes, I'm old. Uh, but um, we have a really small coterie. We, we're not a really big voting block, but we're super big in creation. Mm-hmm. So we're animators and story writers and content creators in a huge way. And I think that might be something that we're writing to maybe address our fears of what's happening to the next year. Because why would you even put that message in that damn kids movie, yeah, right? Like, yeah. doesn't even make sense. I'm like, are they afraid of that? Because now I am. No, but it's, yeah, it was, it was something I noticed in like more than one or two movies, mm-hmm. you know, that it was like, oh, this is something there that's an underlying fear. And we're putting it there. Like, yeah, it's just fascinating. And I think it is, I think all creativity comes from, really, it's the right brain to talk about the the um, the interview we have in the upcoming issue, uh, winter issue of Rattle, about the, the bifurcated brain and how we're two people. But the right yeah. brain is the, the holistic brain that notices patterns and then tries to tell the, the left brain what's going on. Um, and, yeah. um, and, and I think that we sort of subconsciously know that this is a huge problem. And so it sort of pops out in the creative endeavors that we pursue. It's really fascinating to watch it happen. And so I, I love yeah. that answer. That was fascinating. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so let's read uh, another poem. One more field guide poem I think we have. All right. Well, this is uh, the last one. It's called Supervillain Studies for the Love of Ivy. Uh, Poison Ivy leaves a note for Batman in the wake of another apocalypse attempt. You can see, can't you, the appeal of such a world, lush with growth, the earth empty of men's trampling. In college, sitting sitting through botanical medicine classes, ecotoxicology, experiments in plant poisons, it became clear that this was my verite, an orchid dressed to seduce wasps, a blooming parasite wrapped around the trunk of a tree. You might take me home, beg me for a kiss, but don't you see the xylem and phloem in my veins can't pulse for you? My only offense, not death, regenerating from venom fed me by my own professor. Feculent, fecund, and feral, my power you couldn't understand, you being born of cave dwellers, bats, and humans, and your peculiar love of stray cats. My very existence, my only crime against nature. You can't stem the murmur of voices under soil, buried against their will, radioactive trees, GMO fruit. Just consider me another mutant gone wrong, my betrayals a distant backstory, my tears now flow a green ooze as I try to heal the land. Cesium in the sunflowers, goat genes welded into innocent corn. Despite drought and denial, I will continue to grow unharmed. My defense, all delicate leaf and toxic petal. And there's another uh, poem from Field Guide to the End of the World, uh, Supervillain Studies, Part One, for the love of ivy, poison ivy leaves a note for Batman in the wake of another apocalypse attempt. Um, which is more more very fun poems. Thanks for sharing sharing those, Janine. <laughs> And uh, your next book um, is Flare Corona. Um, and so we'll read poems from that, too. Can you explain what that book is about and how is it different? Um, what, is the, what is the theme? It, it feels like all your books have certain kind of themes and, and, and you come together as like a, like a, like a book instead of a, just a collection of poems would. So what's yeah. the theme for the next book? 
Well, what was strange is when Field Guide to the End of the World came out, was actually coming out, you know, being introduced to the world. I had just been diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. I was given six months to live. I got a grief counselor. I have a funeral playlist now, in case you're interested. And so there were six months where maybe it was a different kind of cancer. I went to three different specialists who said, yes, you're going to die. Um, And then I went to a fourth. I had put off chemo because I'd caught pneumonia. And I put off chemo. And then I went to another, you know, one of those second opinions you get from an endocrinologist. And they were like, maybe this isn't going to kill you right away. Maybe this is a less dangerous kind of cancer. Maybe it's just this kind of hormonal tumor. So while, while I was, I was buying a house, I was launching a book, all this stuff. Like in the back of my mind, I was like, am I going to even live to see this? Mm-hmm. I planted all these flowers. I didn't know if I was going to live to see, you know, I didn't know if I was going to live to see them. And then uh, directly after that, I started um, vomiting all the time. And they couldn't figure out why I was in the hospital three or four times. And eventually this ER doctor says, I don't think this is a flu. I think this is neurological. And the doctor um, at the third hospital I went to, I was admitted. He said, I think you've got MS. Mm-hmm. Uh which I was like, well, I would be much more upset about that diagnosis if I hadn't literally just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Yeah. So, you know, in, in the field of things, it, it, you know, it, it gives you a more distant, you know, you're, you don't freak out as much over a diagnosis like that, even though like I'd had symptoms of MS for probably six or seven. I had, I don't know when we met, I might've been in a wheelchair. I had been on and off in wheelchairs. Like I, my limbs just stopped working. Things were numb. I'd fall and break stuff. So I had symptoms of this for a while. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a total shock. Um, and uh, then, then so as soon as I was starting to get my balance with the MS stuff, because it takes a ton of appointments with a ton of people, I had to do speech therapy and walking therapy. And all this. I'm back on a cane, by the way. I'm out of my wheelchair for most things. But um, then we immediately went into coronavirus. Mm, yeah. uh, and all during these times, on the weird times when I would get into the hospital, you know, for whatever, passing out or throwing up or breaking something, there would always be some kind of weird solar or lunar eclipse. I, I watched this weather site called Solar Weather. I think it's solarweather.com. It could be something slightly different than that, but it tells you when you know eclipses are happening, what's going on with the planets. And I just noticed a lot of lunar or solar eclipse events that coincided with other strange health mm-hmm. stuff. So that's why it's called flare corona. Now MS, when it acts up, is called a flare. Any autoimmune problem that, that acts up is a flare. And the corona is, of course, you know, coronavirus, but also, you know, flare corona, really the idea of eclipses is big in this book. It's all over the book. I'm I'm really interested in the idea of eclipses and how those affect the human body, how they affect society, um, how, how the weather's been changing, our crazy weather the last two years. Mm-hmm. So that stuff, it's, it's kind of a bigger book than just about, yes, it's more about me than most of my books are, but it is also about the world and how there's some kind of connection between our bodies breaking down and the earth, mm-hmm. you know, breaking down. I even, I wrote a poem after the book, the book was over, but it's called The Earth's Having Her Midlife Crisis, mm-hmm. right? She, she's cracking up. Uh-huh. Uh, she's being crazy. She's so moody. Uh, yeah. But I, but I was like, yeah. So there's, there. I feel like there is a connection. And, and some of these poems I wrote in California, you know, California is probably the most apocalyptic place I've ever lived. The first apartment I lived in in San Diego burned down. Oh, wow. The next year, the entire place, the parks we walked in, all the stuff we went to, burned down. And then the next year I lived in Napa, there was an earthquake on my street and it broke the road in two. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So I was like, and then Napa caught on fire. So 
you know, it was just, it, it was like you were always living with this. Remember how they had that as reverse 911 calls, be ready to evacuate all the time. Uh, it does something to your poetry, you know? Uh-huh. Well, that's like, fascinating. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a topic yeah. that I, I, I've always found interesting because I, it's, it's sort of on the fringe, but there's a lot of research about um, the way that actually planetary geometry triggers solar flares um, and in solar and space weather because of the way um, it, it changes the very center of the of the solar system. So the center of the universe gravitationally isn't actually in the center of the sun. It's pulled into different parts of the sun, sometimes even outside the sun. Um, yeah. you know, and, and so everything's swirling around the center of the gravitational Barry center of the universe and so when the when the there's planetary alignments it pulls the the gravitational center closer to the edge of the sun which makes for tangled electric fields and then solar flares and then i mean you can yeah. go on and on about this topic but but electromagnetivity affects heart and neurological conditions and it triggers earthquakes and there's a whole bunch of research that is not quite on the surface of um mainstream science but is really close to being there and it's, uh, so it's, it's fascinating that you picked up on that yeah yeah, I'm I'm really I'm a nerd about that stuff. So yes, I'm I'm very I'm like I should have been a seismologist. I love reading about that stuff. I love reading about volcanoes. We're surrounded by volcanoes up here in Seattle. So mm-hmm. we're like, hopefully nothing goes off while we live here. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully for sure. That yeah. Mount Rainier with its yeah. with its uh you know, pretty, glacier pretty melting, rush yeah. flood things, whatever they call exactly. that. Yeah. And there are some people, there are some fringe <laughs> scientists who think that the magnetic poles are flipping, which comes up in several poems, mm-hmm. um which could alter like the lives of all birds and butterflies, anything that migrates. Mm-hmm. So there's just, it just, something feels weird. Yeah. And I think I write about that a lot and, and I kind of associated it with my body going haywire mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think there's actually something to that. And I've always thought that there's something to astrology just because of that, because of the actual yeah. physical mechanisms um, that the planetary alignments alter the the weather of the sun, which is also and, and, how the the farmer's almanac has uh, yeah. been been guessing the weather ahead of time right. for for centuries. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's a that's a geek tangent. <laughs> um, so, but but let's talk about how you know the the health diagnoses you've had and um, and how you know knowing that you might only have six months to live. How did that change your approach and your thoughts about poetry and being a writer? Because I know a lot of people write as a way of of being immortal you know like even if after you gone hopefully if you do it well enough your words will live on um is that a motivating factor for you or how does it how does that perspective of knowing that that time is finite and having that starkly in front of you how has that changed your view of writing i'll tell you one thing that it did change was that i started taking photographs i bought a camera i started taking photographs of things because i thought maybe this is the last time i'm gonna see cherry trees bloom maybe this is the last time i'll see this flower you know so i i started marking kind of in time what what i was experiencing because i thought that's the most important thing you know we we only get this much time and we should notice as much of those wonderful things as we can you know i wasn't really weirdly i wasn't that depressed about it because i didn't feel like my life was in a terrible place and i've had a weird inkling that i probably should get my books published as fast as i can since i was about 30 because i was like listen stuff hasn't been going that well for me yeah. So maybe, and I was in the, I, when I lived in San Diego, I caught the swine flu. It gave me double pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And I was in this room with a dying cancer patient. I don't know why they put me in the same room as a dying cancer with contagious pneumonia. That seems like a terrible decision on someone's part. But, you know, I just remember laying there in bed. I could barely breathe. I was on oxygen. I was on antibiotics IV. And I remember thinking, if I'm on my deathbed, I can't die because I have another book to get out. I, I hadn't published my second book at that point. Hmm. And I was like, I can't die. 
I can't die, you know? So I think that um, I had a kind of optimistic view of what I'd be able to get away with in six months. Um, I also have had relatives, like my grandmother was diagnosed with terminal cancer, six months to live. She lived six more years. Mm -hmm. So I have a, a family history of people being told terrible stuff and then, you know, and then, beating the odds. Yeah. So I was like a little bit optimistic. I, I think, yeah, of course it gives you a sense of your mortality, but I had always sort of, I mean, if you've read my poetry, you know, that's been in the back of my mind for a while. It just shows up a lot of poems. So yeah. Does it make you fear death more? It didn't. It didn't. Uh, but I did, I did make a funeral playlist. Now I have one of those. <laughs> I wrote a will. Uh -huh. yeah, you didn't have one of those before. Yeah. So it, you know, and the funny thing during the pandemic is everybody's been so afraid, and I was like, yeah, but this is part of history, right? Like every hundred years, when the Spanish flu came out, it killed one out of ten Americans died of the Spanish flu. One out of every ten. Mm -hmm. uh, and you don't even think about that. It didn't get written about very much. There's no poems about the Spanish flu that we read. There's there was a a book called The Garden Party where a guy drops dead in front of her house during a garden party or a poor man dies of the flu in front of her house and it doesn't really make that much of a commotion i'm trying to remember which writer that was early american anyway but i was like there wasn't just i looked it up there wasn't that much about it yeah. it's like nobody wanted to document it so i was like i know people are probably over documenting it now but i'm like i felt like in case anybody's reading this in a hundred years like we should not ignore it because i think ignoring it doesn't make it go away any faster and um maybe it'll help us learn something the next time yeah I, I always think about how we um you know our sense of mortality is so different now than it has been throughout all of human history yeah. because we had yeah. you know if, if half of children die and before the age of two which is how it was um, yeah. for, for almost the entire history of the human race and then you know you get an infection and die or you get you know some disease and die um you, you know I, 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 there's a feeling that i think that we have um like so few problems generally, like the general public that, that's healthy and doesn't have health problems like that, um, that, that we sort of lose touch with the fact that it could end and we should be appreciating what we have now. And we kind of latch on to different anxieties because we don't have an anxiety to that, which we had for so long throughout human history. Yeah. And I think our, we're actually trained evolutionarily to be hyper vigilant to certain kinds of threats. Mm -hmm. It's probably why so many people have anxiety disorders right now. I'm like, of course, we've been hyper attuned to getting sick for Three years, if, if you're not a little bit anxious, something's wrong. Yeah. You know, you're drinking a lot. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, it's like, yeah, of course, of course, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, I was talking, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, go ahead. Oh, I was talking to a young person uh, at BOA, and she said, oh, I've never been to AWP. And I was like, really? She's like, well, they've been canceled. And I was like, right, we haven't had AWP since, you know, real AWP in person. So this one in Seattle coming up is the first one she'll have been to. And I was like, this will be my 20th, but it, it's been, it's been weird. And I didn't realize how that, how weird that would be for a young person. They had never experienced it because it didn't exist. Hmm. So, um, they grew up without some of the stuff that in our formative years, you know, when I was that age, you know, we were going to parties, we were doing all this stuff, you know, man, I did. I, I okay. I'm going to make a confession at the AWP Seattle. I had just gotten over pneumonia and I had a broken arm. And I did all my events with a broken arm and pneumonia. And I'm like, looking back, that wasn't a solid choice. <laughs> I probably should have also been wearing a mask. Looking yeah. back then. But, you know, you, you just don't, I didn't take that stuff very seriously. And now I, I see that, well, that was stupid. You know, I was overconfident. Mm -hmm. And I, I probably was putting other people in danger, too. So, anyway, not great choices on my part. <laughs>
<laughs> while you're still here writing great poems, though. Um, if anybody has any uh, questions for Gene Hall Gailey, please do leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll pass them along, anything you want to ask. Uh, but let's read a, a, a poem from Flair Corona now. Um, Calamity is yeah. the first one we have up, right? Yeah. Calamity. I wrote this in December, uh, right before the pandemic. So about four months before the pandemic came out, it got accepted in March at Poetry Magazine. It, I was just so ecstatic, and it came out in April, which is my birthday month. Just seemed like a strange, strange lineup of things. <clears throat> Calamity. Your family is coming over for Thanksgiving. Even worse, it's snowing. Headless robots are playing soccer with your soul. UFOs have been sighted overhead. A meteor is definitely heading straight for you. It might miss, but then again. Tonight, a city is being decimated by Godzilla. Or was it a bunch of genetically engineered dinosaurs? Either way, I hope you're lizard friendly. Tonight, you have to give a speech and that girl who hated you in third grade will be in the audience. What have I ever done to deserve this? The prophet asks, tearing his robes in the desert. And God responds, how long you got? A plague of egrets, of eaglets, of egress. A black hole has just opened up and it is already swallowing somebody else's son. Did you see the team play last night? A travesty. Someone's always preaching about doomsday. Who are you wearing? Because tonight your life will be required of you. Grab a bag, a sword, a water bottle. Go out swinging. And that was a, a poem from Flair Corona, Gene uh, Halgaley's forthcoming book from Boa Editions that is Calamity. Um, so I want to take a detour in talking about the, the speculative yeah. and, and sci-fi stuff and, and talk about publicity because you yeah. also wrote the book PR for Poets. And, sure. But right before the show, you were saying that you wished you had known what you what was in that book uh, with your first book because it would have made life a lot easier and more productive. Yes. So, yes. so what is it that you've learned over the years and, and what advice can you pass on as far as, as PR for Poets goes? I feel like um, for most poets, they may not even know that so much is up to them. In terms of publicity, even even if you get okay, say you get take you get your first book taken by Knopf or Norton's or somebody huge, even then you're going to be expected to do certain things, and that and that was what I did not know. You know, you're expected to be doing some research, you're expected to be building mailing lists, you're expected to be building a platform, which means you know websites, social media, news, paper articles, podcasts now. So that that's a you're supposed to start doing that stuff six months in advance of your book, which I never knew. And uh, I just, I didn't know how the stuff even worked. You know, I didn't know, I, I had put together press releases for other people's stuff. I'd worked in advertising copywriting for a little bit. So I knew some stuff, but I, I just, I wish I knew then what I did now. And also the big news is that there, there's a big secret in the poetry world, which is many of the poets you think are a big deal and you hear their names all the time. They are paying very, very high prices for PR help. Mm -hmm. Very high, like five thousand dollars a month. Wow! And where do they get? <laughs> where do they get that money? Where indeed, Tim? Where do poets <laughs> get their money? You know, it's not from poetry, but it's like when you remember that. And one of the things I wrote about is what I wanted to do with this was give people who couldn't afford that, which I certainly couldn't have with my first or second books. I was, you know, we were barely being able to buy groceries and rent. You know, so. It's really, if, if you're in that situation and you're like, hey, other people are doing this stuff, what can I do that will make some, some make your book stand out a little bit more in the world of many, many poetry books? And, you know, it's hard to get a review these days. I, I'm a reviewer myself. I know that, you know, if you get sent 50 bucks a year, you're probably going to review four. Mm -hmm. 
you know, so it, it's it's tough to make your stuff stand out. And um, I just wanted to give people a feeling of empowerment is basically what I what I'm selling in this book. Mm-hmm. Is, is a sense of empowerment that you are not alone. And I interviewed PR people. I interviewed marketing reps from from publishers and and big name. I, I talked to some really big name press people who I won't name, but some of them just gave such a dreary picture of what was even possible. You know, they said somebody who's a, they had a, a person who was a star on social media, you know, 100,000 followers. And they said it did not translate to book sales for them. Mm-hmm. So even when you think like, oh, I've got it made, the poetry books don't always sell themselves. And it's been really tough during the pandemic. Zoom Zoom poetry readings like this one are rarely sell books because people aren't in front of you. They can't get the book signed. There's no tactical, you don't, you don't have stuff in front of you, right? Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's been a, a challenging time for book sales people and the price of papers going up. Yeah. It's so, is, um, yeah. so if I was going to do a new version of this, which I plan to do at some point is update it, you know, more Instagram stuff. There's book talk now, which there wasn't when I was a kid. When I was a kid growing up, there was no TikTok. Uh, anyway, and now there's book talk, you know, and the bookstore scene is way different. There's there's more indies. Amazon has so much control, um, you know, which is good and bad, right? Like if you mm-hmm. are in the middle of a bookstore desert and you need to get a poetry book, you can always go to Amazon, which is good. I mean, that's a good thing. But I, I think we're, we're missing out on on other stuff when we do that. Yeah. And, and two, um, you didn't mention, but I know I won't name the press or the, the editor either, but I was talking to uh, an editor and even accepting a book in the first place was contingent upon, is this person going to go out and like work for their book and have an, have an audience already, a, a platform already, and, and somebody who's going to stand behind and keep promoting and doing readings and all the things that you have to do to sell books. Yeah. Um, and so even getting published in the first place could have a lot to do with that because it's really easy to find your social media and see how good are you at engaging audiences and and getting and getting information and material out to people and, yeah. and that's a consideration for for accepting a book for publication and uh yeah and i think people don't even know that they don't even realize that comes into play mm-hmm. i think i know the publisher you're talking about <laughs> uh, but anyway i keep a lot of secrets on this show. <laughs> so many secrets we're yeah. talking about secret codes yeah. But it is it's interesting. Yeah. And I, I feel like many people don't know, hey, you can hire a peer person for less than $5,000 a month. There are a lot of indie. In fact, there was just an article in uh, Poets and Writers, the November issue, has a great article by this girl, Nancy Reddy. She mentioned peer for poets, but she talks to a bunch of people who are independent publicists for indie authors. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fantastic. I mean, if you can afford it, why not? Right. Yeah. Everybody yeah. can use that. Even, even though like you go to most of my presses have been one or two people. They don't have a dedicated PR person. Boas, the first press I've had that even has a production person and a marketing person. That's crazy. <laughs> Blows my mind. Yeah, without the slash. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. So it's, yeah. So it, it's nice. It's a nice, I feel like it's a big luxury that I've never had before. And even then, I'm still thinking, what more can I do? What more can I do? Especially since I'm disabled, I can't travel as much. Coronavirus has put a damper on a lot of stuff. But you know, what's weird is that coronavirus has also enabled a lot of things. Like I would be able to visit campuses mm-hmm. virtually, which they weren't open to that before. I could do readings more virtually. Um, I feel like that's actually good for people who are disabled or chronically ill because we can't always get on the bus and like city to say we can't jack hair racket, you know? Mm-hmm. 
So it's it's nice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I know, and I, I don't want to make everybody go broke, but I know everybody watching the show buys books because people tell me after the fact, and we really appreciate that. Hopefully, hopefully it's yeah. spread out among many people, and you're not buying books every week, but buying books regularly. Um, but but what what can you do to translate? Like, what actually translates into book sales in your experience? Because that is a problem. We have a fascinating thing that happened, which I think about all the time, which is, um, so we had a poem um, called, um, it was something about, like, I am Antifa. It was Alejandro Ascuday. And it was this poem about, like, the nuances of Antifa. And um, and so so some Antifa people type people read it and were, like, upset because it was kind of, like, putting them down in one way. But then the far right, um, Jack Persobiak or someone like that, some far right-wing troll, um, retweeted it to his, like, two million followers. And this was last summer. And said, like, Antifa's writing poems now. And so I got this, like, flood of um, messages from all of his followers being like, you know, go back to communist Russia and all this yeah. stuff. And, go back and, to um, Russia. Yeah. And so it was, like, literally, like, thousands of, like, responses to that one retweet. And I got, like, tons of emails. But I looked at the web traffic and no one even read the poem. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> you know? disappointing. And, and so it's the same kind of thing. Like, you can generate social media um, engagement and like an audience and then have nothing convert to actually people reading your poems. So right. how do you go about actually like getting people to read your poems? Is there a secret to that? I think you should ask Rupi Kaur. <laughs> yeah. Not me. I'm not, I'm not. I mean, you know, she has a million people reading her poems. Yeah. I find that very, very interesting. And I just read a thing about um, who was the guy in the seventies, Rod McEwen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that guy hustled like crazy hustler. He was always selling his books and he made like he sold a million copies of his books, but he was always working. That guy was always he made records. He went everywhere and did every festival. And, you know, you, you got to admire his hustle. He wasn't much of a writer in my opinion. That's what I mean. Any Rod McEwen fans. Said, nope, don't send me hate mail. Are, are there any Rod McEwen fans? I don't know. Don't add me. Don't add yeah. me. Uh, but um, but it but the other thing is, yeah, you can put these people down. You can put Rupi Cora down. But, you know, she figured something out mm-hmm. and I don't. I don't feel like she should be hated on for that. I mean, you know, hey, teach me how to do that, Rupi. Tell me. <laughs> Yeah. Go ahead and do it. Well, well, I have, I have, have a viral news story to start. I think is a good, good. So, so how do you go? How do you get a viral news story that the New York Times covers? Oh, that might be the you know, first. I was thinking about. Do you remember uh, Maggie Smith? She yeah. was a poet, kind of, kind of a, at our level, like yeah. a kind of a medium-known poet who had one poem. Uh, the Good Bones, yeah. Good Bones poem, and it yeah. went viral, and it really did sell books, and uh, and she did that in a very positive way. I thought, and took advantage of it without being weird about it you know like so so there are happy stories about things going viral not just anti-fa people <laughs> there are nice people who also share balloons which is which is what i think we want and uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful that happens but for me the best ways to have sold books was a postcard you send out a postcard with your book the ordering information on the back you write a note to the person i feel like that touch the personal touch really helps mm-hmm. you can send out an email blast but you're more likely to delete that right even if it's a friend who sends it to you mm-hmm. you're sort of more likely to press delete then you are a postcard. You might put that on your fridge and say, "Oh, I should buy that person's book." Yeah, you know. So that's been a, and and readings in person readings have been really hit or miss. I don't know whether that's new or oh, really. I've heard that that uh, is the number one way to sell books is in person readings. Right, I had heard that too, but now I'm thinking, well, maybe it, maybe after the pandemic, it'll be something different because mm-hmm. society has changed in the way they buy things. It it, it we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the next next version of the book will have all that update. I don't have it yet. 
Yeah. I don't know the future. I pretend to, but I don't. Well, what do you think about uh, putting your stuff out on social media? Like, because there's this big sort of lockdown on like no sharing on social media until it's published, and and that I think puts a really big damper on it. And our philosophy at Rattle is always to spread as much for free as possible, yeah. and then people come to support you when they like what you're doing. And so I always think that, to me, sharing stuff. Um, sharing your own content and just being generous with it is the best way to go, and then and then stuff follows. Um, and Rupi Carr is a good example. I think every all the poems in her book are um, she, just on her Instagram, and then she compiles them into books, and then people buy yeah. them. So, yeah. so, so, do you feel that way? Do you think it's that that it that saving poems for literary journals holds poets back? Once in a while, I'll share a poem if I, it's particularly topical or I feel strongly about something. I might share a poem before I publish it. But mostly I'll share a poem after. Because you, you want to be able to say this literary journal had first rights or this book has first rights to whatever. So, yeah, I would say, like, I'm not one of those people that puts everything up on their blog. And if I do, I take it down really quickly because I don't want people to find it. So, I, I, yeah, it's hard. At least, of course you want people. If, yeah, if you put a poem up on Instagram and a thousand people like it, your publisher is going to like that, right? They're not going to hate that. I, I think that it's a tricky line to walk to say when, when to share yeah. And one of the things about waiting until it's published is somebody else has put their stamp of approval on it. Maybe that means something, maybe it doesn't, but, mm-hmm. you know, and then you also help publicize, you know, Rattle or, you know, whoever just published your work. You also get to help a small press or a small publisher. And I think that's important too. Yeah. A lot of people, when they, uh, after we publish them in Rattle, like right when they get the issue, post a screenshot of their screenshot, poem yeah. in there. And then right. some people ask me later, oh, are you upset that I did that because, you know, it's sharing the poem before it's like online and people have to buy it. And, and I always say, no, I love it when people do that. It's great. Like if the whole issue was out on people's, you know, Twitter as screenshots every single page, I would still be happy because it's just sharing poems. And then people want to, people want to, you know, share, 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 get them out of the bottom drawer, Jerry Stephenson says. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, that's I think... my philosophy. But I know I'm kind of in the minority. I think people are a lot more yeah, there, guarded there are with their some, work. Yeah. There are some literally magazine who don't allow you to share it mm-hmm. under certain circumstances i think so yeah it's kind of you gotta you gotta know where you're coming from and who you're working with and i i tend to write to editors before i share something but i think it's getting more common to mm-hmm. do the screenshot thing i don't think any, anybody's getting upset i'm I'm, I hope nobody's getting upset yeah, about it. Yeah, I hope so, too, because we want to, you know, it's, there's not tons of money in this. And we want to share poems is the main thing yeah. we want to do. But speaking right. of which, I think we should read some more because there's like 10 minutes left in your official slot, though there's no right. strict time limit. We have one. I don't know if you're going to be able to do this, but David yeah. Cook has a special request. And yeah. it says, Janine started early with a poem about nuclear war disaster as a boy jumping in mud puddles when she was seven-ish. Yeah, Can we hear right. that poem? Do you have that by any chance? Uh, no, it's gone. Lost, <laughs> lost somewhere in my archives of my parents' house. I don't know. But yeah, I was about seven when I wrote that. And I was very aware of nuclear war. Hmm. For some reason, the seven-year-old, and I felt like I was writing this really deep poem with metaphors because the boy was in a green raincoat. That meant he was in the military. And the rain was acid rain. And everything was, you know, so hilarious. But no, no, I don't. I wish I had that poem. I still remember but I, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't have was it because you watched that? What was that movie that was um, not the China Syndrome, but the one that was like Day After Tomorrow? Yeah, I watched that when I was like, you know, a kid, and yeah. Oh, Madeline Lingle's Wrinkle Wrinkle in Time trilogy ends with a swiftly tilting planet, which is all about nuclear disaster and how to avert it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that book really impacted yeah. my psyche. And it's still there. It's still in the back of my mind. <laughs> Hi, Russia. Yeah. Don't don't bomb us. Yeah, let's not let's not do that. Um, okay, so uh, let's hear another poem then. Uh, yeah. All right. This is called. This is, now one of the things in uh, 
the sci-fi community, you talk about different timelines, right? Multiple timelines, string theory, blah, blah, blah. So this is about that. This is the darkest timeline. One that started with the roll of the dice, an election gone awry, a time of fire and flood. And we started to panic at every pandemic, went into quarantine playing quarters. We've all become the evil versions of ourselves, just trying to get back to the prime timeline, the one where everything went right, where our memories weren't clouded by calamity. That butterfly that flapped its wings, the animal virus gone rogue. We couldn't buy butter or bullets. We waited with bated breath underground. When we emerge anew, we'll be with new eyes. Our currency changed from cash to cashews and cheese sandwiches. You can't remember the taste of food without tin. You can't remember how to kiss. Your sense of time scrambled. You learned to throw a knife and gut a fish. The darkest timeline has taken us the way of apocalypse, earthquake, super volcanoes, tidal waves. We can't take any more disaster. We buried too many bodies and sheltered in place too long to forget. When we started this journey, it was nothing left to lose. Now we're too tired to remember how fresh fruit used to smell, the pale pink of cherry blossoms, the days before the coyotes took over our streets. And there's another poem from Flair Corona that was, um, this is the darkest timeline, which is something maybe people are feeling right now. I wonder if yeah. they, they slipped into the, I wonder if 2012 was like an actual shift into a darker timeline. Yeah, um, so. One thing that I, is kind of a, something that I've noticed is that you read really fast. And, oh, and I sorry. do too. And, um, and I wonder if, uh, why do you think that is? And, and why, and I'm only thinking about this because on the critique of the week um, on Friday, I think it was this week or maybe the last, we read some, um, we listened to like me reading versus um, a poem versus um, uh, Mark Kelly Smith, the slam poet, reading some poems. And it was interesting to compare how they do it. Um, I go really fast and I like it fast, you know, and um, yeah, I'm noticing because I just I have this sort of usual scroll as I go through guests and I'm having trouble keeping up with you because it's like not the normal pace. So, so how do you how do you think about reading poems out loud and um, and and. I don't know what considerations go into that, or do you just read like you read in your head? Because that's what I do. Yeah, I think that I talk fast as a regular, as you have probably noticed during this interview. I do not talk slow to begin with, and I think having an artificial poetry voice is sort of weird, or you know, it's not Shakespeare, you know. So I'm reading in my voice, and the other thing is, I think it has to do with having asthma. I've had asthma since I was a kid. So even when I did these, remember I did these poetry recitation contests. Man, you had to get that done in like three minutes, right? And you're like, how do I get my breath? So it's good enough to get through this. Darkest timeline is tough for me because it's long. And I'm like, most of my poems you'll notice are pretty short. And the lines are short. There's a reason for that because I can't hold my breath that long. Huh. So it's, it's, it's I, I think that unknowingly affects how you read. Yeah, yeah, I think it does too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, let's hear, hear the poem. I want to I get through the last two poems too. So let's yeah, do sure. Mutant Sonnet. All right, Mutant Sonnet. Self-portrait as banned 1950s science fiction movie. This is where the killer shrews come back around and all get back around. The ones where aliens represent communists or robots represent nuclear destruction. Would you be the giant leech woman or killer shrews? King dinosaur or the knight of the giant Gila monster? Always some monster coming in to wreck the girls in bikinis dancing to bongo drums on towels on the beach and barns in the country. The tinny radio stating, be on the lookout, turn down, just as it describes the oncoming atrocity. Kids driving down an empty interstate too fast encounter the wreckage, spacecraft, collapsed bridge, burned bodies. What apocalypse specifically is created from radioactive astronaut and mutant dinosaur can you face with square-jawed sheriff at your side? 
Think hard before you point your pistol, the laser gun, before you set the dynamite or A-bomb on the life forms unique and pitiful stranded upon your planet, wishing only for home. Yeah, and that was Mutant Sonnet, self-portrait as bad 1950s science fiction movie uh, from Janine Hall Gailey's newest book forthcoming uh, in the spring from BOA Editions, uh, Flare Corona. Um, one of the things, that, let me ask about this too, because you are such an open person. It's so fun to talk to you because of that. I've noticed over the years doing this that a lot of poets are very closed, um, you know, which you would think maybe that because they're poets, they're super open and, and want to share everything. Um, do, do you think that has something to do with your health problems and the sort of limited timeline? Or is that something you've always had? Like what makes you so open and so sharing of things? Because you can tell that just what, whatever you're thinking comes straight out and, you, and we get to hear it, which is really fun. So what is Yeah, she doesn't have much of a filter. Uh, but um, I, in some ways that's good and bad, right? I'm very trusting. I'm probably more more trusting than most poets. And I, I don't have a big reputation to hide or sell or whatever. I'm not ashamed of the stuff I think about. I'm not ashamed of the sickness. I'm, you know, I was talking to someone wonderful, a wonderful poet, actually. Um, and I'm going to say her name. It, it's Rita Dove, mm-hmm. who um, I had written to because she had recently uh, said in an interview that she has MS. Mm-hmm. And she was diagnosed years ago. And she said, yeah, I never felt okay to talk about it until this last book. Rita Dove, maybe the best American poet in the last hundred years was afraid to talk about MS. And that made me feel heartbroken Mm. that she, you know, was there a fear that she would get fired or that she wouldn't be invited to stuff? So I, I kind of do my best to say, Hey, I'm disabled and I have chronic illnesses. I'm not dead. (laughs) You know, Hey, I am still able to do stuff and I'm definitely able to write poems and read them. You know, it's, it's different for me than it would be for other people. But I, I hope that other people get the message that it's okay to be flawed. And I mean, that's part of the human condition, my friends. And I, I feel like, yeah, if you keep too close a guard on everything, what fun is that? What fun is that? So fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, I totally agree. So it's fun, fun to hear you say that. Um, so we are closing out time on the show. Well, let's read the last poem, Supervillain by the Sea After the Summer of Bombs, again from Flair Corona. All right. Supervillain by the Sea After the Summer of Bombs. September always makes me pensive. This year, the headlines won't be grabbed by any of my evil doings. I'm content to watch the news seize the world by the throat with fear. Nuclear warheads, supervolcanoes, hurricanes, rafts of fire ants. It's enough for me to recline and plan for tomorrow, for a day when surely they will need me again to shake things up and give the needed freeze on. Frankly, I've been uploading meditation apps, <laughs> trying out Pilates and holistic breathing, storing my superfoods, trying out new trends in grain bowls, watching a little food network before sleep. Some of those guys look more like supervillains than I do. I tried perfecting a gluten-free brownie recipe and forswore radioactive fish. When I think of the levels I've already subjected myself in my experiments, let's just say I don't need to be more Pacific tuna, thanks. The waves lap cold at the edge of the world, the rocky layer where I've been shoring up inspiration for a rainy day. The light turns gold over the pine trees. For once... I don't need to spoil anything. Yeah, excellent poem to close it out on. That was Supervillain by the Sea After the Summer of Bombs um, by Janine Hall Gailey from her forthcoming book from Boa Editions, um, Flare Corona. Janine, thanks so much for being a guest. It's been a lot of fun. I knew it would be um, a great, perfect guest for uh, the Halloween, the day before Halloween show. Really fun talking to you and great poems and, and good luck with everything that's going on and good luck with the new book too. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yep, take care. Have a good one. All right, you too. Bye. That was Jean Hall Gailey once again with uh, reading poems from two of her books. Um, it was um, 
um, Flare Corona, the forthcoming book from Boa, and then also um, Field Guide to the End of the World. You can find all of Janine's books. And I forgot to ask her about this. And uh, I think she's gone. Yep, she's gone. So uh, we can't. But her website is webbish6.com. That's webbish, W-E-B-B-I-S-H-6, the numeral six, dot com. She's had a blog forever. I think that might be where I met her the first time because I used to blog and we kind of blogged, you know, shared blogs and stuff um, way back 20 years ago. And she's always been at webbish6. I don't know where that comes from. Um, but you can find her book, um, her all of her books there. Also, PR for Poets. So um, let me put that on the screen really quick. But this is uh, Gene Hall Gailey's website, webbish6.com. Find her books, find PR for Poets, all that good stuff um, there if you would. Now we're going to take an open lines uh, after a quick break. And uh, we're going to share some creepy poems if you have them. Share anything else you want. If you don't have a creepy poem, that's fine too. But, um, but share whatever you've got. The, uh, the prompt for this week was to write something in a kind of Halloween, spooky, creepy type spirit. I have a long poem I'm going to subject you to. Um, but then share whatever you'd like. I'm going to put the Zoom, uh, the Zoom links up right now. Follow me uh, if you if you want to share a poem. Only if you want to share a poem. Um, go to the Zoom link here. If you don't want to share a poem, just want to listen to all the good poems we're about to hear. Just sit tight right where you are. But if you want to share a poem yourself, email it first to open mic. That's open m i c at rattle dot com. That's open mic. At, at rattle.com, openmic at rattle.com. Email it there so I can show it on screen like I did with Jean's poems throughout the show. Um, and, uh, and then find me on Zoom. I'm pasting the Zoom links into Facebook and YouTube streams so you see them in the chat windows there if you'd like to join. Um, that is the Zoom, but only if you want to share poems. And uh, if you do come over to share poems, um, shut off your Zoom stream or shut off your uh, YouTube or Facebook stream too and only watch through Zoom until you read your poem then you can go back because otherwise you'll have two streams at the same time there's a delay it gets confusing so only watch one place there's only so much bandwidth on the earth um, <laughs> but if you'd like to share a poem hop over to Zoom and share a poem in just a little bit I'm going to take a quick break we'll listen to this uh, Luck Witch poem again by Audio Hertz and uh, not poem song but a poem is a song right so uh, here's Luck Witch by Audio Hertz I'll be right back And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Like I said, uh, the prompt for this week was to write a spooky or creepy poem. I can't remember which word I used for Halloween. And I'm going to subject you to this long poem. I've been trying to write this story as a poem for a very long time. Um, or, or as a, I, I wrote it once as a, as a fiction story, and it wasn't really working. And I wrote it once, or I'm writing it now as a poem, and I don't know if that's working either. Uh, uh, but we'll, we'll try it out. Uh, just to warn you, it's kind of long. It is, we could call it um, creative nonfiction. We could call it a, a lyric essay. I don't know what to call it. But um, let me find it here. This is based on a true story. Um, one of my two ghost stories. Maybe next year I'll, sh- I'll write a poem about my other ghost story. But this is one of two. This is called Dark Room 16. And um, there's little numbered sections so you can kind of get a sense of where we are, too, in this poem. But here we go. Let me... Um, Okay, here we go. So this is Dark Room 16, my uh, creepy poem for today. Uh, 13. Dull drone of machine winding down, a whine melting to a whisper, and then just a soft tap, tap, tap of loose film against its clean metal housing. Your eyelids flutter open to darkness, half sleep, the constant sleep, the 12 hours of sleep, then go home to sleep, darkness winding into darkness, night into night, light into memory, too bright to look at. You push the button, you know to be green, and shuffle back to your chair as the machine purrs to life. 
like a cat you think deep in some corner, like a black cat, and you dream of a black cat, crouching, twelve, dull drone of the machine winding down, a hiss, a pleading, what? You startle awake this time and jump out of the chair, disoriented, head swinging up or down or sideways, it doesn't matter. You think you're blind until you remember to close your eyes, reorient, Kodak Park, Rochester, New York, Building 43, Dark Room 16, a summer job, piece of pie, cupcake, the temp agent said, handing you a pair of safety glasses. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Of course you're not afraid of the dark. 11. Dull drone of the machine winding down. Eyes closed, you imagine the room overlit in fluorescence as it is once a week. Black walls, cement floor. The chair, an orange relic from the 70s. The wooden table next to it, a thick as a chopping block. And in the center of the room, a monolith of polished steel. The T-perf. It's the size of a bus. A maze of gears and knobs and rollers that caress the blank movie film as it rips feed holes down each side. Gently, no scratches on the emulsion. A vacuum to suck loose perforations from the grinding heart. Four dollars a foot, three feet a second, all day, every day. Ten. Dull drone of the machine winding down. You take two steps forward, two and a half to the right. Feel the OSHA slip strips through your sneakers. Tape the loose end and ease the 23-pound roll off its pin deftly. I could do this blindfolded is the joke. You balance the roll on your hip and carry it to the vacuum sealer. Set it down. You like to think you're a Vedic priest, memorizing 10,000 lines of poetry in the subtle tilts of a head. Poetry is motion. You're a miner in some hole. You bend to pick up an empty core from a box full of them, feel for the nub mark with the tip of your thumb, then slide it onto the pin, nub out. Five more steps, passing the heart. You reach through a narrow door in the darkness for the side of a fresh roll, grooved like a record, four feet wide. You run your fingers around the circumference, eyes darting between layers of black. Don't be silly, nothing there but lifeless machines. Nine. Dull drone of the machine winding down, two steps forward, two and a half to the right, balance the roll, seal it, reach into the black door. You wrap the loose film, a pattern cut, a careful splice of red tape, fingers free and a green button to the zipping sound of discard running through the heart, other knobs and over knobs and wheels to the other side, an automatic snap cut, and in your mind you see twenty feet of film fall into the catch tray, a fluttering hundred dollar bill. The splice is going to be the hardest part, the boss said a month ago, his doughy face green and pulpy in the one pair of night vision goggles. Glowing eyes like a monster shouting over the machine. Any overlap will clog the heart. Too much gap and the tape will catch. Either way means downtime, and downtime means money. 8. Dull drone of the machine winding down. You wind the new core, reach up for another button. Green means go. You push it and turn to find your chair easily in the black, hesitating for only a second as you lower yourself, your mind conjuring the lap of something briefly evil, some ghoul waiting to greet you, and then it's over, and safe in the churning mull of the tea perf, you settle in for five more minutes of sleep. 7. Dull drone of the machine winding down. The whirring is crickets, and you don't notice them slow to a hush. All miners are sleepwalkers. You're a miner in the woods, old as glass, eyes dissolving, shying from light. It's a fear. Everything is a fear, but you're not thinking this, seizing cores and pushing two green buttons. Not thinking. You're a miner in the woods. 6. Dull drone of the machine winding down. No, this is a pounding, just audible above the still rumbling T-perf. The thump, thump. Hey, kiddo, the floater's voice, and then the plastic scrape of the rotating door. This is your wake-up call. Relief is here. The dark is more comfortable as you paw at the tabletop for your duffel bag. What time is it? You call out to nothing. No one watches in the dark. 
About eleven, the floater says, suddenly next to you. Count. Five. Dull drone of the machine winding down. Nineteen slit, roll six, be back in thirty, you say, slipping on a pair of sunglasses. Ten steps left, five forward around the machine, to thump thump, your knuckles on the plastic door. You step into the capsule, spin the opening into the light of the warehouse, the long walk through a labyrinth of hallways, the cafeteria full of laughter and clanging plates by day, but Thursdays are nights. There's only the eerie glow of the Coke machines, snack machines with their hot dogs and cheese sandwiches, the thin legs of tables, chairs casting layers of shadow. Instead, you head for the bathrooms through the quality control office. The QC's bald head is bobbing is a bobbing silhouette against the large screen of his microscope. Frame after frame rolling by on the monitor, boxes of white on a deep purple background. He's only twelve years older than you, but his thin hair is graying, each eye buried deep in its socket, like the last pea in a bowl. He's a mole. He's mole-like, transformed from years in the dark. He's the one who told you, miners dream of the surface, moles are home below ground. Hey, how's the ghost treating you? He snickers over his shoulder. The same old game. Temps get darker than sixteen because it's haunted. One of the engineers got his tie stuck in the heart, and it pulled him in face first. Last temp still locked up in a rubber room, screaming that the machines are alive, the eyes, the eyes like pearls. Everyone laughs when you roll your eyes every day. 4. Dull drone of the machine winding down. You spend your entire break in the bathroom, legs falling asleep as you sat using the toilet for a chair. You'd planned on reading the whole time, but found yourself reading the same paragraph over and over, the black and white of the pages blurring into a single gray mesh letter as you counted down the minutes of vision you had left. You hate this job, the damn dark. And here it is, everywhere as you recline in the ugly orange chair, feet up on the desk, the machine groaning in front of you. Five minutes between cycles, five minutes of stasis and daydream between 30-second intervals of actual work. You've tried everything to pass the time, books on tape, and the guitar both useless next to the roaring machine. You tried writing a novel, but when you leafed through the thick notebook during a break, there was no way to disentangle sentences written on top of each other. You gave that up, too. The only way to deal with the dark is to ignore it, to turn off the senses that have nothing to sense, turn the consciousness in on itself. An empty reverie, you think about the cosmos, about Buddhism and baseball and string theory, but mostly you think about girls, languid girls with yellow hair and no clothes, laughing, the way the morning sun would look against the curve of a hip as you slipped exhausted into bed. Had some girl been waiting for you at home? You think up goddesses to protect you from your thoughts as the machine winds down and you stand, stretch your lower back, and move forward without thinking. You can always conjure them to keep from thinking. Of what? Eyes like pearls. The liquid motion of absolute dark. The door to the larger room where no one goes, where there are no lights to turn on and only automated machines roam a network of conveyor belts. No one has seen inside that room for years. It's where million-dollar rolls of movie film 12 feet wide wait to be slit, perforated, wrapped, and shipped. Any light costs money, so there is no light. 3. Dull drone of the machine winding down, green button in the dark, the zip of discard running through the heart, automatic cut, an unseen drop, another green button. You sit back down. There are two doors to that other room, a thin aluminum door, as on a garage that slides up along a massive mechanical arm to lift a new slit onto the machine, and a maintenance door on the other side. The maintenance door is normal, thick black steel, a danger sign above a silver-sphered handle. You imagine that handle, far on the other side of the room, slowly rotating, a silent creak, and cheekbones, brunettes, the Buddha with his full belly and empty bowl. Was that a noise? Don't look. You think of hips, of curveballs, and two-seam fastballs, and shit. 
You look toward the door. Is that a shadow in the blackness? A movement? You see two crescent eyes like yellow pearls open from slits and they hover over there in the nothing in your head. You know they're in your head as they narrow and drift closer without gaining ground, creeping, and you close your eyes, still seeing them, slow, baseball, bowling. Two. E, 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 a tone blaring above the groan of the T-perf. The eyes are gone, your heart fluttering. A sensor ringing, you page the tech. The intercom is near the rotating door, ten steps left, five forward, around the machine and through the void where the eyes never were. Eyes like pearls. Tech to darkroom 16, tech to 16. A delay, and then your own voice from above. Tech to darkroom, E, 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 tech to 16. You turn, leaning against the cusp of the door, finger on the intercom, waiting. One. Dull drone of the machine winding down. The pulsing tone grows louder. E, 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 until it is the only sound in the room, a standing wave in the darkness. E, 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 the thump, thump. You jump as the door slides open. Hey, it's Tech, the voice says. Sounds like a problem with the arm. You feel this human form brush by with a scent of onion. You follow, tentative. Two people in a dark room are always running into each other. You stop at the table and hop up. The tone stops. This is weird. The slitter door won't open, says the voice. A pause, a tinkering. Hey, there's still a half a roll left on the machine. Why don't you get that running, it says. You hop down and do your job, deftly, old roll to the vacuum sealer, new core, numb out, wrap the film, green button, go. The machine whirs to life. You ease yourself to the right, where the tech should have been, at one hand out in front of you like an antenna, fingers find a shoulder. Yeah, I have no idea what the problem is, he says. It's not even trying to open. Clang, clang, you leap back. It's the sound of something metal hitting the thin door next to you. It echoes in the darkness. Clang, then nothing. The tech jumped too, but now he's calm and joking. Sounds like more than a ghost is trying to get out, he laughs. In your mind, you see a giant mechanical arm pounding on the tin door, ripped metal peeling outward with each thrust. Hydraulic gears, claws, two yellow crescent eyes. You can't move. The machine purring like a cat, a panther. It isn't real. A goddess in a field, her eyes like pearls. You hear a faint rattling sound, and then the tech. There it goes. Seems to be working now. Weird. His hoose by, whops, Vunyan. You still frozen, staring at the blacker than dark hole. The other room. Give me a call if it happens again. The tech at the door, the thump thump. The tech gone. You stand there, alone and unblinking, not breathing. The machine groaning to your left, constant and deafening. Two feet in front of you, the narrow door, black within black, expands, widens, and a single paw slips in, gently. Metallic and gleaming with emptiness, burning with absence. It isn't there, creeping into the room, razor claws not tearing at the gray paint of the floor. Two crescent eyes like pearls glowing, monstrous, yellow pearls open from nothing, move forward. Hinged creaking, stalking, a girl. Think a girl, her hair in the morning, sunlight eyes like slits beating, the heart moaning. Think a girl, her hips a roar in the woods, and the dull drone of the machine winding down. So sorry for how long that was, but that was a true story <laughs> based on my summer working at a darkroom in Kodak Building 43, darkroom 16. I think every detail is true. So that is definitely a f- speculative fiction, nonfiction piece. Um, but sorry it was so long. <laughs> That's Sharon Francis here. Maybe we should go with Sharon first because she unmuted herself. Well, thanks. I'm so glad. Maybe that does. I've never written a. Oh, oh Sharon. Yeah, there you go. So, um, yeah, I've never written a, a, a narrative 
poem that was long before. I've, I've tried before. It's never worked. So maybe it worked that time. Oh, well, yeah, yeah it worked. I, well, yeah, I, I was definitely there. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks. It definitely creeped me out. Like, I uh, I really hated yeah. that job. I dreaded going to work every day. But they paid, you know, it was, it was a good paying job. So um, I needed it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, you have the, the, the hat, the perfect hat for Halloween. Um, what do you have to share? Uh, I actually have two. Okay. I think we probably have time. I think we do have time for two poems as long as it's like a, it'll be a two page max. So if they're, as long okay. as they're short, well, I know your poems t- are kind of short. They're, so, they're, um, they're, they're very short. They're, yeah, they're very short. I'll accept um, you sent them as a pages poem and I can't open pages. Let me see if I can open it with note. I sent it. It's not in the, in the word document. It's, it's not in the pages doc- document. Let me see if I can open it. Uh, with word i have to download it first i'll be there i'll be there though oops nope it won't open do you want to come back um swing back later and we'll get you later you can send it just in the body of the email because it's fun to read along okay okay cool thanks sharon thank you let's go to uh let's go to i saw i saw the first time uh we have oh it's uh david cook i think send it what what i do Sure, just email it to me at a, uh, email it to me at um, uh, openmicatrattle.com. Just paste it into the body of the email. Uh, okay, so David, how you doing, David? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Great, glad to see you. It's been a while. So it has. I... Yeah, it's always nice to see people who uh, used to come on all the time and then come back again later. Yeah, I just, it's things get busy. Yeah, they definitely you know do. I don't expect is. everybody to be around all the time. That's for sure. So I'm glad you could come back. I do. I do listen to um, each of the rattlecasts um, while I'm working ah, throughout perfect. the week. Yeah, that's how so we hope. We hope it goes. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, so the the poem I have is uh, based on the prompt um, to write about a landmark. Uh huh. And so I wanted to do that one, and it has a actual. I, I sent you a copy with the photo of the actual landmark. Yeah, I have it here. I'll put it up right now so everybody can see. This is the actual landmark. And what's it called? It's called uh, Century's View from Rocky Butte. Uh-huh. And it's um, it's it's a sonnet that is as you know formal and to the uh, you know syllable counts and everything as I could do. I thought you might appreciate that. Definitely, it's I definitely always do. Looking forward to seeing one of this my, one. Yeah, one of my few rhyming poems. <laughs> Great. Let's hear it. Okay. A century's view from Rocky Butte. Below its rampart walls of New Deal stone on the asphalt moat round cindered cone, the windshields fog with heavy breath, its folly built to ward off idleness. Gone is the jail of county criminals torn down for traffic's roaring carousels. And gone is the hill of good war sharp shots, spent casings glinting in the bottle shards. Now scripture soldiers reborn in eggshell domes love their Bibles more than man or ghost. Their faith's Jim crack light was once a beacon, now scopes the view merely planing heaven, leaving contrail shavings, dust and hoarfrost beneath the moonlit with what the day lost. Excellent. That was great. A century's view from Rocky Butte. And uh, that feels Halloween-ish too, even though it's uh, the last week's prompt. So thanks for sharing that, Dave. That was great. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Good to see you. Um, let's go next to oh, Attractive Fahey is here. Let's let's talk to Attractive because she's in uh, the UK and uh, it's very late there. 
No, I'm actually in Ireland. Oh, Ireland. Tim. Sorry, Ireland. That is my bad. Yeah. No, that's okay. We're I think we're on the same t- same time zone. Mm-hmm. So I stayed up because um, our clocks went back last night. Ah, so how, so what time is it there right now? It's one thirty a.m. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm not putting on my video because I'm in my pajamas. <laughs> no problem. I'm just glad you could be here. So uh, so what is it that you want to share? Um, it's a poem called Samhain. And it's uh, Samhain is um, the Gaelic for, it's it's um, the Celtic season. So Halloween would be Samhain here, even though we call it Halloween now. It's It was a precursor for for Halloween. So it's, it's um, a poem that describes what it was like for us in Ireland in the 60s. We didn't do trick or treating. That wasn't a thing mm-hmm. because it was considered superstitious to um, um, go leave your house at night. Um, on so we played games, and it usually it, it it was all about apples because that was the only fruit other than blackberries. So we we'd go ducking for apples. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, I wrote this poem about sound and my memory of our childhood, and uh, because I grew up beside a graveyard, like between two graveyards, it that enhanced the oh, whole wow. atmosphere. That, that sounds great. Yeah. <clears throat> so sound. After picking apples for weeks under the crunch of fallen leaves, evening grows dim. We ready for winter. Living next door to the church, we were first to hear the bell, six o'clock. On our knees, hands joined in prayer, elbows on chairs. After the Angelus, on our knees again, Hands, this time behind backs, we took turns trying to be the first to get a bite of an apple bobbing in water. First to bite the one one tied to a string hanging from the ceiling. First to get the ring from the barn back. First to gather the pennies for the long dark nights. Outside, the animals whimpered. Outside, the animals whimpered at our screams. Air laden with spirit. Green eyes peer from the turf shed where our cats become witches and our dogs barking in excitement. The veil thins. Graves behind our land rose up. Tombs opened and the wind carried the souls of our dead to our house. So thank you. Yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. It was a wonderful poem. I love that. I love that tradition too, which I got to learn about. I always love learning things. That was really neat. Thanks, Tim. Thank you very much. Yeah, Great yeah. night. Glad, yeah, glad Worth you could join us. For. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Take care. Have a good one. Okay, that was Attractive Fahey with uh, Sawain. And, um, yeah, as she said, Fahey for, for Summer's End is believed to have been a precursor to Halloween. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Attracta. Uh, let's go next to um, Jerry Stephenson this year. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Hey, Jerry. Yeah, great to see you. I see your hat anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I almost am like it's floating in space. <laughs> can you see it now? I can see you. There you go. Yep, I see you a little no, bit better. This is my impression of Alex from A Clockwork Orange <laughs> in his golden years. Excellent. That's great. <laughs> ah, so what do you have to share with us, Jerry? Okay. I've got another Gabriel and poem. Ah, okay. And this is a, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of a spiel on it. There's a reason for it, okay? Mm-hmm. It's almost a true ghost story. Ah, it's that yeah. close. Uh, okay, here's, here's the preamble. Uh, poet's note. The Spanish founded Gabriel Island, B.C., 1791-ish. It was never lost, and it was in very good hands. 
Jack found Gabriola 1971-ish. He became culture of what Gabriola is now. His print is all over the island. He's gone through, he is embodied with kindness and love, and a dash of spice. He um, is a rumored man. One of his rumors abounds is that uh, on the North Road Tunnel, which is a canopy of trees for three kilometers, very tight to the road and over top, he would take his jack-o'-lantern down there and light it and put it. Now, this time of year in Gabriel, when the rains come, okay, mm-hmm. you have trouble lighting gas on fire. Oh. And he have it burning. But then he started confiscating pumpkins and brought them there and borrowed them and collected them. Now, we lost Jack two years ago. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of a legendary guy in the island. So anyways, I've been thinking about him a lot, so I know his family well. And I got their permission to do this. And my friends at Spillworth published it on the 20th, by the way, too. Oh, great. Yeah, so, but anyway, so I'll give it to you now. Jack O'Lantern of Gabriola Island. Every event has its fans special. Take one and make it stand. Oh, Jack loved Halloween. The lantern thing broke his heart to extinguish the flame. In pumpkin carved so bright, every Halloween night, he furrowed them along North Road Tunnel. Abandoned ones as well, they're funneled. Then he would alight them. Others seeing his wonder would add theirs to Jack's plunder. Quite daunting a sight. No one knew by whose design, plus the whose that kept them glowing and alight. Jack would shepherd his herd, tend to his flock. It had become quite a sight. We, the island, lost Jack two years back. Yet, legend grows and prospers. Who is the soul that quietly allows them to flow? When the night grows longer and the shadows in the tunnel mist, cap on head and match in hand, of course, that's Jack O'Lantern. Folks comes to lands of legends. Jack came to the island to be a legend. And if you know Jack, you would know Jack. Uh, that's wonderful. Thanks so much. Great tribute and perfect Halloween poem. Thanks so much for sharing <laughs> that, Jerry. Yeah, thank you very much, Tim. Great show again. I, I love the banter on your gal head on PR for Poets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's a very, very useful book. Um, yeah, definitely. So yeah, definitely everybody try to pick up a copy of that. Yeah. I got my notes on here too, yeah. Excellent, cool. <laughs> you cool. take good care. Happy yep. Halloween, eh? You too. Happy Halloween, Jerry. We'll see you, bye. Bye. Uh, Jerry Stephenson with uh, Jack O'Lantern of Gabriel, Gabriola Island. Let's go to uh, Nate Jacob next. Hey there. Hey, Nate. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. My uh, dog's at my side. Excellent. Uh, so if he's in the frame, he can be a first-time caller. <laughs> sure. Sounds good. Uh, so what do you got for us? I got a uh, Halloween poem. Uh-huh. Uh, appropriately titled yeah (laughs) i couldn't come up with the title Uh, here we go okay cool uh from the curb just beyond reach of the porch light i watch as my youngest child dances up the steps and in a voice barely audible to anyone but me squeaks out a timid but confident trick-or-treat no one ever answers him the lamps burn bright and i can see shadowy forms past the windows adult laughter seeming to mock my hopeful child who waits his darkness building in the cool night. In time, other louder children join him at the door, and as a group, they beckon in one sweet scream for the bowl full of treats and toys waiting inside. Soon the door swings wide, the warmth spills out, matching the lively spark of cowgirls and ghouls, comic book heroes and famous zombified athletes, all of whom crowd the entry, press hands into the bowl, my own child's arm barely noticed, pushed to the side. It happens at every house. His call met with silence, then waiting seemingly forever, 
until livelier bunches arrive. I would suggest they make my boy part of their group, but the one time I did, they looked at me as if I were mad. Their parents laugh along the way until they see me when pity replaces party and they ask if I'm well. Seven years on and I still retrace the path he walked. The one night I ever get to glimpse my dead boy's ghost. Oh, very sad. Touching. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nate. An excellent Halloween. Not poem. a true story. Yeah, thank saying. God. I was going to, I don't, I don't, I don't want to assume. I was hoping not <laughs> no, for not. sure. My youngest yeah. is still with us. Yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Nate. Great, great Halloween thank poem. Thank you. Yep. Take care. That was Nate Jacob with a Halloween poem. Let's go to, uh, let's go back to Sharon Ferrante because I have the, the poem she sent here. They're, they're two short poems, The Angler and Letchworth Village. Hey, Sharon. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, good to see you oh, again. You know, I love that interview tonight. Thank you so much. Yeah, Janine's great. I just love you. I knew it was one yeah. of the ones I was looking forward to for a while because she's so fun. Yeah. And a great perspective on everything, really. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't know why. The, well, the first document, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It happens my, sometimes. Instead of pages. My, my, and and yeah, Windows does my, not like pages, so... <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was a word. Yeah. But my husband helped me because I'm a computer dummy. <laughs> That's okay. So what do you have to share? You have two poems here. What, what, tell us about them. These two poems were just published in Sirens Call Publications a oh, couple cool. of days ago. Yeah. Yeah. For their Halloween book. Ah. So that's what I want to read these two short poems. Perfect. Yeah, go ahead. It just goes stories. Yeah. The Angler followed me. Closer came the stench of rotting fish and black fig. I glimpsed a lure attached to his boonie, the feathers now crawling morsels. I've never been afraid of being caught by a ghost. I just pulled the hook from my leg and cleaned up the bloody mess. Oh, that was great. Great tiny ghost story. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. The Angler. Yeah. And here's another one based on a real place mm -hmm. in in New York that they took. It's, I, I, I was really honored to be in this book. Uh-huh. Sirens Call Publications. Letchworth Village. When a ghost cries... It's the sound of babes dropped on a stoop, a catfight till dawn. All night, he's been sleeping on wet concrete. He needs to talk. I give up my seat. He begins with the crawly things, the living. Oh, that was great, too. Letchworth Village. Thanks for sharing those, Sharon. Two excellent, tiny, Halloweenly perfect poems, perfect with a hat. Um, and and how did, why did you write that about Letchworth Village? Because um, that's near my, uh, my old haunts, <laughs> Rochester, New York. It's like an hour south. I love Letchworth State Park. It's got the, the know, best pool. It's The water's 32 degrees. <laughs> it's freezing, but it's fun. I, well, where I lived in New York mm -hmm. was just... Five minutes away from Letchworth Village. Oh, was it? Oh, great. And then I worked at a middle school for 20 years, mm -hmm. right in the heart of it. Oh, very cool. Yeah, great they, place they, to live. Yeah. They took one of the buildings and, like, added on to it and made our school. Oh, very cool. 
and um, yeah, it was haunted. <laughs> That's great. It, it was haunted. Yeah, and, um, and Dick says here, Letchworth Falls frozen the winter is magical. I don't think I've ever been the winter, actually, but yeah, it's amazing. Letchworth Village, mm-hmm. you know, they, they where they took the insane asylum, they just took too many residents in, and it got real bad. Mm, interesting. And then they couldn't take care of them. It's very disturbing if you look it up. Hmm. And I wrote quite a few poems about it, and I just went real short. Yeah. Because you know me. Yeah, we love your short style. Yeah. 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 Well, the whole stories are there in both those poems. They were great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sharon. Great night. Yeah. Great night. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Okay. That was Sharon Fronte with uh, Letchworth Village and the Angler. Let's go next to, uh, let's go to Mary Ann Ebdo. Hello. Happy Halloween. Yeah. Happy Halloween, Mary Ann. How are you doing tonight? Good. So this poem is called Not That Way. It's called, a, it's about a misadventure starting off um, as a new employee in the hospital. There was one section brand spanking new. I don't know why they keep the old section, but. <laughs> yeah, I can see is, where it's going already. Yeah, those oh, abandoned yes. hospitals are, uh, that's one of the creepiest <laughs> places in the world, I'd say. It's very creepy. Yeah, perfect. For, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Not that way. One side of the hospital is new. The other side, hardly inhabited. Built in 1919, the year the Habsburg Empire collapsed. Walking through patient floors that are modern, strolling past corridors that smell like musty old rooms with bleach permeating, it somehow intertwines. It was a cold and rainy day, forgetting my umbrella and hearing of a shortcut to the parking lot. A coworker gave me directions to that concrete shelter, following her step-by-step command, making such a haste to leave that day. So onto the Otis elevator, I hesitatingly entered. I followed my coworker's verbal script and possibly onto my own death. For the mode of transportation squeaked and groaned, opening onto floors with empty office spaces strewn with litter on a marble floor path. Reaching those long corridors, it reminded me of many horror movie scenes. The path followed, provided me with smells and sights of decomposing furniture. The only sounds I could hear were of my heart pounding out of my chest. The last exit was finally in sight, a perfect escape and hoping of reaching my car, opening yet another airtight scratch gray door then are taking one exit stair and then another, all sprawling down to nowhere. My heart was racing ever so quickly, passing by more half-opened, empty office spaces. Now with cell phone in hand, it served as my clutch security blanket, reopening that long hallway door into the abyss. Feelings bubbling up as if I'm being watched, finally, finally escaping to the door to which I started. Never, never, ever again will I return. A thought just struck me. How many trapped souls surrounded me on this creepy walk? Yeah, super creepy. Thanks so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that was Marianne Abdo with uh, Not That Way. Yeah, excellent. There's nothing creepier than an abandoned hospital. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, It was great, great hearing that. Take care. Have a great day. Yeah, you too.
Bye. Yeah, there was a it was a Marianne Abdo again with the haunted hospital poem. And let's go next to um um let's go to who's next? Um Varanthi uh Rangan. Or Jayanthi Rangan, sorry. Um hi Tim. Hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I loved it. Uh, loved the entire show today. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, okay. so what do you have for us? This is a Halloween poem called uh, What's Manufactured, What's Not. Excellent. Um, the coven was human adult size of lined faces, pointy hats and brooms. They segued as musicians do, right on pitch. A lone pogo stick kid close by hopped lazy jumps of forced cheer. Her slick head looked forlorn as though she didn't belong, but was compelled to party. I stood bewitched uh, till an urgent whoosh broke my spell. The vaulting little person was losing life, shriveling shorter in front of my eyes. The witches forgot about candy treats and ran to stop the oozing breath. She was unfixable, leaked her air and died. I laughed a nervous laugh. <laughs> the bloat was a fake. It looked so real. It was the witch's turn to laugh. The helium and the balloons were authentic indeed. They stuck to their original drive. The rest of us assimilated alloys, born with whole grain goodness, but cooked with accusations and influences that stick, stuck. Excellent. I love that ending. Yeah, that the metaphor there. That's great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Janthi. What what's manufactured, what's not. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Uh, it's Jayanthi Rangan with uh, What's Manufactured, What's Not. And uh, we will go next to uh, Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing tonight? I'm do- I am doing well. Um, gr- great interview. I love I loved the vulnerability and the, and the sort of like what kind of poetry came out of all of the trauma of, of, of your guest, uh, Janine. Yeah, Janine's is great, yeah. And... Your poem, I mean. Oh, thanks. You think that? Or do you think that's a poem and not a short story? I was trying to like make well, absolutely. it. Absolutely. You think? Okay. I mean, it, it is so. You know, if you think about a, a poem, you know, the sort of like how it moves your body as much as it, you know, that moved my body more than my imagination. Very um, cool. Well, thanks. I'm so. gl- I'm glad that worked. I tried to do the repetition to get it, the po- more poem because it wasn't working as a short story. I don't think. No, no, I, I, um, it, it, and, and, uh, it's very entraining, you know, it sort of like gets you on the, on, on the track and I'm not one much for long. I, I have a very short attention span. Yeah, cool. I I'm Sharon. so glad you liked it. Yeah. Thanks. I love Sharon's poems cause I can read them in 30 seconds. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I am an utter spoil sport. I don't have like the art bell horror halloween gene in my body yeah well it was tough it was tough last year i don't remember i don't know if you're here for last year's show but i i tried to write another one and it didn't work at all so i I went all full out on this one because i was embarrassed by how unscary last year's poem was um but uh 
but yeah, so that's okay though. So what do you have instead? Yeah, so I have uh, my Poets Respond poem trying to apply Newton's laws of motion to the crisis in Haiti. Excellent. Let me let me pull that up really quick. Yeah, sorry to be a spoil sport. It's not a spoil sport. There's still good poems. There's still a world that exists outside of Halloween creepiness. I know, I know. <laughs> so um, tell us the tell us the. Uh, I mean, the title kind of says it a little bit, but but let me let us know what the story is about. So you know, it, it's hard to sort of like identify any particular crisis in Haiti because the country is in crisis so much of the time, but the. Uh, influence of gangs has just sort of utterly overwhelmed any sense of of government that, and sense of a sense of order, and it's reaching out into places where it never has before. And finally, the Haitian government is, what for what it's worth, is reaching out to the international community and asking for intervention, and that has never turned out well. I mean, of course, you don't want to deny them help in trying to make ordinary people's lives better. But the last time after the earthquake, UN folks brought cholera to the island. Yeah. It had been it had been uh, free of cholera for a hundred years. You oh, know, we wow. think of it as being disease-ridden. UN brought the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the U.S. has intervened and, you know, supported coups and not supported coups. And yeah. it's just is that it's confessions just, of an economic hitman thing too, where they kind of exploit, you know, people to get loans and there's all that, that problem too. And, you know, it started, you know, Columbus came and, you know, his second trip there, you know, cut off the hands of the natives if they wouldn't bring him proper amounts of gold. And, and there were more uh, Africans brought in enslaved in Haiti than in, I think the rest of the Americas. I mean, it was just, oh, wow. it's I didn't just know that. stunningly, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, anyway, so asking for help and how complicated that is, is, is what, and, you know, the, the innate fear, as you'll see in the poem that I have of disorder, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I read about these things. And the first thing I think is, oh my God, could it happen to me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's hear it. Go so, ahead. Yeah. Trying to apply Newton's laws of motion to the crises in Haiti and here. And I do have a, uh, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention is like uh, cross quarters days. Are you aware of the concept of like these holidays that come in between the equinoxes? No, I'm not. No. Solstice. Well, that's All Souls Day, Halloween, Day of the Dead are a cross quarter day Hmm. halfway between. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. Okay. You're right. Yeah. Groundhog's Day or in bulk day. Comes mm-hmm. ha- right exactly halfway in between. Oh, They're all, it's all yeah. around, the, all around, and it makes sense. Like this is really the first day of fall, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're or right. The first day of winter, right? This mm-hmm. is when winter really starts kicking yeah. in. So, anyway, trying to apply Newton's laws of motion to the crises in Haiti and here. One, none of this is fact. It all might be true. A person sits under the last tree in Haiti. Severed hands, cut from a thousand teanos, falls from the last tree's limbs. The sitter has seen this before, all the falling. He's seen the damnable third law of motion up close, that the opposite reaction is always equal to a planet of pain, that the eaters of candies and snack cakes are not the ones who bleed, that we Americans don't care about who cuts the cane, who feeds our sweet teeth, whose bodies are buried under stone, whose gold is traded for the labor of the enslaved. 
whose bones are ground down by a history of men hauled from their African homes, whose souls are shipped here to be yoked, to plows, to millstones, to grow whatever the owners own, to die in droves. Two, all of this is fact, and some of it might be true. From space, you can see the scream, the land stripped of trees, the gravity of greed, the fear, the gangs all have the guns, sell gasoline out of rusty drums, have become the order of rape and plunder, the regime of bodies burned, wear necklaces of severed thumbs. The authorities run, the people are caught between, a man in a tie in a broken palace asks what we, that we intervene, and we who believe we know all the laws of motion, think that the force applied by good guns will undo 500 years of momentum, that this time will be different from the last and the last and the last. Three, some of this is fact and all of it is true. I am a body at rest who wishes to stay at rest, a man composed of fear. What has happened there could happen here, and I would be the one standing in my own rubbled palace of a home, begging for someone with a gun to save me. Yeah, great ending as always there, Dick. Excellent poem. Thanks for sharing that. That was uh, trying to apply Newton's laws of motion to the crisis in Haiti and here. I noticed you sent, too, a, uh, a Seamus Haney poem. Yeah, I did send a Seamus Haney and poem. I don't know if it's Bog Queen. Um, do you want to yeah. read that? Uh, sure. Because that'd be fun. Um, I, I love, uh, it was really hard. Like I said, it's always been hard to find poems that are like appropriate for Halloween. There aren't many horror, you know, Halloween type creepy poems out there. It's just a genre that doesn't get picked up very much. Well, and this is not particularly a Halloween poem, but it is about, you know, this you know, I think a true story of a body found mm -hmm. in a, he has a number of bog poems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And bog, haunt, you know, haunted bog poems. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what Halloween's all about, is that thin veil between the living and the dead, right? So it's it's perfect, even if it's not uh, pumpkins. <laughs> so this is, I guess, a persona poem, Seamus Haney being the, the bog queen, the woman found in the bog. Um, so here it goes, bog queen. I lay waiting between turf face and, oh, i terrible with phonics, Damascene wall, between heathery levels and glass-toothed stone. My body was braille for the creeping influences. Drawn suns groped over my head and cooled at my feet. Through my fabrics and skins, the seeps of winter digested me. The illiterate roots pondered and died in the cavings of stomach and socket. I lay waiting on the gravel bottom, my brain darkening, a jar of spawn fermenting underground, dreams of Baltic amber. Bruised berries under my nails, the vital hoard reducing in the crock of the pelvis, my diadem growing carious. Gemstones dropped into the peat flow like bearing the bearings of history. My sash was a black glacier, wrinkling, dyed weaves in the Phoenician stitchwork redded on my breasts, soft moraines. I knew winter cold and the nuzzle of fjords at my thighs, the soaked fledge, 
the heavy swaddle of hides. Oh, that was excellent. You get, you get, you get the Haney, um, you know, runs their gemstones dropped in the peat flow, like the bearings of history. That's great. And I had he, I never read that poem before. Thanks so much for sharing that, Dick. Yeah, thank, thank you for giving me a, a reason to go look for it. Yeah, appreciate yeah it. my pleasure. And that's all we have on the Zoom. We got everybody. Let's see what else we have over here. And um, we have Nivedita's poem. And um, I should say that uh, that uh, Nivedita will be able to join us live, hopefully, in two weeks, because another um, another uh, early show we're going to have, this is on November 14th, you should know, because um, Little League, my Little League, league has a, um, Little League League, has a uh, game Monday night, which they promised they wouldn't do, and um, I just love coaching the Little League, I don't want to miss it, so I'm going to do the Little League game Monday night. We moved David James, is scheduled for November 14th, from the regular time to... Uh, to noon Eastern, like the critique of the week time. So uh, we can get the game in and uh, and the show. And so Nivedita will be able to join us live, hopefully then. So, um, but here's her poem. Let me, um, she didn't include, on. Um, let's see. And didn't record it, so I'll read it for her. But she says, I have attempted to write a serious spooky com- poem combining Diwali, our festival of lights that just got over on the 24th of October, and Halloween on the theme of light night. The poem, according to me, asks a good question. It may not be the most apt for Halloween in terms of spookiness, but is quite scary, so may fit Halloween well. But it fits Diwali quite well. And it's also sort of a hyben. So here she goes. Uh, This is a Night Light of No Return uh, by Nivedita Karthik. Here we go. I will read it for Nivedita. The talons of the night are still holding strong to darkness, but my house is shining bright, not like a lighthouse, for that would be one lone bright light in the midst of the darkness. No, the lights in my house form one of many in a row and light up like the street lamps do, banishing this darkness. But is physical banishing of darkness enough? A single flame glows, pierces through the dark. I reach for the light. Nothing is needed to feed the festering dark. It consumes my mind. Excellent. That was a great poem. That was Night, Light of No Return by Nivedita Karthik. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nivedita. Um, always a pleasure. Let's see. So Jennifer Elise Wang sent a poem, but is not here on the Zoom. So I think I will read that for her. Let's see. And Clayton Clark has one as well. And Ted Guevara. Um, and JB. Who is JB? Not sure who JB is. I don't want to read it without giving like full credit. Maybe we'll do that poem next week. But let's do um let's do Clayton Clark's spooky poem first. Clayton says, Sorry, I can't read tonight, but I would love to have you read it if there's time. This wild story just happened in Pasadena a few days ago. On the second page is a photo of the woman with her axe. Wow, I'm curious about this. This is to the pretty lady with a pickaxe. Okay, so let's this is uh Clayton Clark's poem. Let's read this really quickly. To the pretty lady with the pickaxe. Barely a slice of moon, the night before the sun slapped you from sleep. Barely a slice of a woman in your flowing green gown. You stalked the few blocks, long-stemmed axe slung across your shoulders like Jesus on his worst day. I've seen the agony as man turns to werewolf on TV, but for the life of me I can't see what's happened to you. That's what's scary, how far I am from grabbing a weapon or two. What sent you enraged to the neighbor's home, grandma and infant there alone? You swung your axe like Hercules, crashed each of eight. 
tall windows barely missing, slicing the infant to bits in her bassinet. The father weeps as he relays the story, his baby saved by her quick-thinking Nana, who screamed as his ring camera caught it all, unlike any other day at work. "'Questions, anybody?' you shouted. "'I'll be back. Get out!' The neighborhood trembles. Leaves fly in the wind. Everything's quiet, but nothing is calm, as All Hallows' Eve blows in. I hope you get help, dear lady." And wow, look at that. That is actually a lady with a pickaxe in a green gown who is smashing a house. Yikes. Who knows what happened there? Um, and then uh, the, the captionist family say they're terrorized after a woman smashed home with pickaxe. And that's a true story from Pasadena a few days early for Halloween. But yikes. Glad no one was hurt, too. Thanks for sharing that, Clayton. Um, okay, so let me see what else. We have a few more minutes. I have a couple more creepy poems that I pulled up. Um, I'll do one more poem from Rattle. This is The Creature by Amy Parkinson. Parkinson. And this is also is from Rattle number 38, um, the speculative poetry issue. Um, and Amy Parkinson about this poem says, A poem is a creature with its own conscience, enlightening, enlightening the secret philosophy, speaking with its own voice, reaching with rhythm, breaking boundaries with cacophony, and entering, entertaining with addiction of paradox. The anatomy of the creature is a rhetorical structure fighting to make an authentic aesthetic statement into a song worth singing. Ambiguity and irony are the lifebloods that flow through the creature's new music. Only the poet knows why the creature muses as it sings. Great, great uh, note there from Amy Parkinson. And here is Amy's poem, The Creature, which will wrap up the show. The Creature. It became part of me somehow. I felt it moving inside me, the way an unborn child moves inside its mother, in a way only a woman can feel. It flutters, it leaps, it kicks, it churns, it grows. I feel its tentacles growing longer, stronger, remember its violent, translucent blood flowing up my legs, the way the blood dried velvety and then turned into fine black powder blown away on the winds. We both breathed it in, this little tiny and dainty pink thing now swimming inside of me to swallow my heart. Why wound it? We don't even know what it is, and now we'll never, ever know. No one will find a way to study the creature. It wasn't its fault that it washed up along the shore. Why do you want to hurt it? What's the use in destroying what we can't understand? When it first happened, I couldn't believe what you did. I wanted to take pictures. You destroyed my camera. I wanted to set the creature free back to the waters. You slapped it out of my hands, crushing the creature. I wanted the creature because it was dying again. I helped it become a part of me, a woman moving inside, inside a woman, in a way only a woman can feel, flutters, leaps, kicks, churns. Now it grows tentacles, longer and stronger. I carry its violet translucence like my heartbeat as blood dries velvety, turning into fine black powder blowing away the winds. I ate it as it shivered. You tried to confiscate it. I won. Now I carry it behind the rocks and into the shadows as it shudders in my naked arms. You're a man unable to kill me when it crawls out of my mouth as if to die in my arms. You clobber it, crush it, smash it, stomp it, hurt it, torture it. After you try to kill it again, I hide it the best way I know how, the one place you'll never think to look. You're still so angry, afraid that I'll put it inside of you. Why not? Why don't I do to you what you did to me when I was so afraid, so close to the water? That was Amy Parkinson with The Creature. That'll be the poem to close it out. Um, let's do the Saiku really quick, and I have no recollection of what the Saiku was this week. Let me see. 
I know I did one. Let's see. Okay, so the Saiku. Oh, yeah, this is right. So um, here we go with the story that's the Saiku. I can make it fit. Um, so ancient viral. This is from uh, Cornell University. Ancient viral DNA and human genome guards against infection. That was the uh, article that inspired the Saiku. Um, viral DNA and human genomes embedded there from ancient infections serve as antivirals that protect human cells against certain present-day viruses, according to new research. And basically what they found here is that there's um, retroviruses can implant their DNA in cells, and sometimes they do it in, um, in uh, cells that are used for reproduction, and then they get passed on and become part of the human genome. And so there's a whole bunch, I think it's 20% of the genome, of the human genome, they say what percentage? 8% of the human genome, sorry, is um, these endogenous retroviruses, they call it. And what they did is they looked at what, what um, the genes were expressing, what proteins they were expressing, and they found that they were expressing certain things. One of them is called suppressin, which um, blocks the, uh, the entry of viruses of the, of the same class inside the cells. So um, the integration of these viruses into the human genome is a barrier against infection from these viruses. So, so fascinating. It's a whole new area of uh, virology, um, a whole new layer of protection that we have that we have no idea about. Um, we, there's really no research into this. It's a whole new sort of pathway for fighting off diseases that we have that we had no idea it existed. So that's how complicated. I, virology is famously like the most complicated subject in all of science. Like if you think... Uh, you know, theoretical physics is complicated. Virology beats it by a mile. And this is one example of why. So that was the, uh, the story for this week. And, the, and the, here's a Saiku for this week. Um, here we go. Tim Saiku. Ancient virus suppressing the urge to sneeze. Ancient virus suppressing the urge to sneeze. That is your Saiku for the week, and that is the show for the week. Thanks, everybody. It's been a great episode. Love talking to Gene Hall Loved all the creepy poems. Um, really good stuff. Uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be at the regular time at the regular day. It's going to be uh, David Bolas. And I love having different types of poets on the show. And David is actually more known as a fiction writer, um, young adult fiction specifically. But several of his novels are, um, are verse novels. So he's writing um, you know, books in verse. And um, he also had poems in Rattle as well. Um, there's a border, I think it's called Borderlands series about um, characters that are teenagers living on the Texas border. They call her Fregona is the most recent. It's several books in the series. Um, but he's got a lot of stuff in, in verse novels and, and a, um, really interesting material. So we're going to be talking to him about different options and ways you can use poetry and the importance of books like these for our culture, um, representing people that aren't you know, traditionally represented in literature. So it's uh, good stuff with David Bolas. That's going to be uh, the Radicast number 167. Oh, the prompt too. Sorry about the prompt. This was the prompt, before we go, from Gene Hall-Gailey. Um, the prompt was, pick a villain from pop culture, comic books, fairy tales, etc., and have them respond to the events of the last six years, include a musical instrument and a favorite food. So a very detailed prompt there from Janine. Uh, pick a villain from pop culture, etc., and then have them respond to current events and also include a musical instrument and a favorite food. So it should be interesting poems there. That is Gene Hall Gailey's prompt for next week. And once again, the guest for next week is David Bolas. That'll be Monday, November 7th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Rattlecast number 167. Hope to see you there. Hope you have a great Halloween uh, if you celebrate Halloween. We're going to have some trick-or-treating and some 
um, chorus singing at school, which should be fun. Hope you have a good one, too. See you for the Critique of the Week and uh, next week for uh, Rattlecast number 167. Thanks so much for watching. Talk to you later. Have a good week. Good night.